Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wassalamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala Ali wa sahbihi wa sallam. I'm Brother Ali. This is the Traveler's Podcast. This is a unique episode in a lot of ways. Usually I record the the bumpers later. But because of the fact that I'm on tour with the Grouch, I don't have any of my equipment with me. I'm going to go ahead and do the intro now. Most people don't have to hear their own intro. <laughs> like most people, we just start talking and then I do the intro later. Yeah. Um, but I'm really blessed to be in Seattle, which is one of my many homes away from home. This is a place that I've spent a really good amount of time. And um, I've only done a few of these in person. And it's a really beautiful thing uh, that that this is one of the ones because you in a lot of ways are the reason that this podcast exists because there are certain people that, um, you know, we we're talking as we were driving up that like, sometimes the people that we know are household names, mm. you know what I mean? Mm. And sometimes people we grow up with become household names mm-hmm. and that's always really dope. Like I'm never mad at that. I'm always happy when that happens. But for people that really live and operate in community the way that people naturally do, you know, not looking at the world through screens, oftentimes the people that are the most important embodiments of the things that matter to us are not necessarily household names, except for to the people that know them. So like the people that know a lot of the folks that we've been talking about off off the can. So everybody knows Yassine Bey and everybody knows Mm -hmm. Dave Chappelle and everybody knows Macklemore and everybody knows it's great. You know what I mean? But a lot of times the people that I connect with the most are folks who, if you know them, their impact on you is so great in your life and in your heart and like who we are. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't know if that's a household name, but in my household, this is one of the most important names. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you're a person, man, that, like I said, before we even met, I thought I knew you. Just so wild to me. I'm just like, no, I've known this guy for years. That's and it's so like, wild. I think it's just from being, <laughs> I was part of the same community that you're part of. For sure. And in that community, you're such a household name that no. I'm just like, man, yeah, I know Gabe. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so when Bam- Bamboo introduced us, you told me, I, yeah. like even at that time, I was like, no, I know him. I remember you said that. And I was like, I'm pretty sure we never met, bro. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to meet you. but Crazy. I even asked Bamboo, like, yo, could you introduce us? Like, That's I feel like so we should know each nice, other. That's so <laughs> Wow. But I just have to say, and I think it's a really good way to get into this conversation, that your new album mm-hmm. has been my crying album wow. since it dropped. Oh, wow. Like I cried. I cried for an hour. Listen, I cried in the shower this morning listening to your record. Wow. That means so much to me, bro. Thank you. And wow. It, it really is like, man, the art that matters the most, and I'm, I will very likely cry while we're talking, but so often what's beautiful that I love about art, and I'm sure we probably have a lot of the same mm-hmm. favorites and influences, I'm but sure. yeah. the art that can pull together what's happening in somebody's personal life in a way that connects like that, mm-hmm. but then also pulls in the narrative of what's happening around the world. Yeah. Um, you know, and then also there feels something feels very divinely planned and timed mm. with your album coming out and what's coming, what's happening in Palestine. It's wild. And um, yeah. so I just, I think that I, you know, I could tell the version that I understand, but I would rather have you mm-hmm. start with the the personal connection between mm. home and what that means and and the story of of your new album, please. Okay. Um, 
Wow. Thank you for that. First of all, I, I got to say it's so deep to me that you said you said um, the album is one of your crying albums because you're you're one of the few rappers that have made me cry, mm. you know, and the one that always gets me is Dear Black Son. Mm. That song like I've cried to that song so many times. So and it's very few rappers that have done that to me. So that that means a lot to me, bro. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. So this album is called From the Ashes of Our Homes. Um, I started making this album in the early months of 2020 before the pandemic, actually. And um, I had this whole idea for another album where I was going <laughs> to... It's funny because I haven't talked about this publicly. Um, the album was going to be called Seattle, Ethiopia. And it was going to be a story about my family's journey here in Seattle because my mom, she's known as one of the old timers in that she was one of the first people from Ethiopia to migrate to South Seattle mm. when there was like 30 to 40 Ethiopian and Eritreans here. We're talking about the 1970s, Crazy. you know? Amazing. And for people that don't know, Seattle has one of the biggest Ethiopian, Eritrean, and Somali populations here. You which know, is rare. Which is really rare that those three communities are in one place. And it's something more like 30 to 40,000 Ethiopians in Seattle now. So my mom remembers when it was 30 to 40 individuals. Um, and I grew up in a household where we were often, like I met most of my relatives when they came off a plane. You know, they called me one of the first kids, as in I was one of the first kids from Ethiopia to be born here in the United States in Seattle. Um, and I've had a really particular experience because of that. Um, growing up in the south end of Seattle, Washington, going to school, predominantly black schools. Mm -hmm. Everyone thought I was Mexican because I'm mixed. Okay. You know, my dad's white. Um, and I didn't know that. Yeah. And um, that's why Dear Black Son hits me so hard. Aha. You have a white dad with a black son. With a black mom. Yeah. Aha. Yeah. So, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's, it's, I was because, I mean, Ethiopian people are the almost the whole spectrum. Absolutely. Uh, as as Africa is as a whole. Absolutely. Because I'm saying we're talking about the, the mother and father of all human beings. Yeah. So, like, the, of course, the whole spectrum is there. For sure. From albinos to very dark people. But I just assumed, I, I know plenty of Ethiopian people that, that are your complexion. complexion. Yeah, no, I'm mixed. I'm mixed. Uh -huh. and, and the only person in my family that looked like me at the time. You know yeah. what I mean? So it was, it was a lot growing up. So mm. I say that to say, like, the original idea for this album, <laughs> coming back to it, was I wanted to tell a story about my family and this community, how I've seen it grow, because that's just something I've seen with my eyes. And in hip-hop... I'm the first Ethiopian rapper I ever knew. Mm -hmm. I had, like, there are other Ethiopian people in hip-hop that have done it as long or longer. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know them right. when I started, you know? Um, so now, especially, like, we're in Mead Street Studios right now here in the South End. Yeah. There's tons of Ethiopian artists that record in this studio now. Mm. You know, like, I meet new Ethiopian, Eritrean artists all the time. But growing up, I was the only one I knew <laughs> for so many years. So it's just it's just a particular experience. I wanted to tell that story on this album originally. And then the pandemic happened. Had all these beats, by the way, too. So some of the beats on the album, Open Letter, Dust, and Soul Cries, were for the original. I had 15 other beats done by Mocha Only for that album. Crazy. I just, wow, shout I, out to Mocha Only. That's I just, dope. I just left them behind, you know? Yeah. Um, when the pandemic hit, I mean, that became everyone's focus, I think, you know. Um, me and my partner, uh, Ijoma Oluo, a lot of people know her as a writer. Um, we we started a, a 
something called the Seattle Artist Relief Fund, thinking the pandemic was going to be a few months, you know, knowing we could we could get by all right, but a lot of our people were losing all their gigs right away. That became a full-time job. Um, we ended up raising a million dollars and giving all the money away to artists in that first year who lost their gigs. Um, you know, didn't keep any money. It just all went out. And then I got the job at KXP mm-hmm. a few months later in 2020. So I ended up working harder than I ever have in the pandemic, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I was working five days a week, <laughs> doing a show at 5 a.m. in the morning. And, um, yeah, just kind of put the album on the back burner, you know. 2020, I lost one of my best friends, mm-hmm. uh, Rawa Hapte. She rests in peace. There's a song dedicated to her on the album. We all lost so many people. Mm-hmm. And three weeks after Rahwa died, we had a, a rechargeable battery for a lawnmower that w- was charging in Ijoma's office in our house. We were both upstairs. And we think the battery charger exploded uh. while we were upstairs. Um, she was about to do a thing on Zoom. I was reviewing records for KXP and the smoke alarm went off. And um, I go downstairs to see what it is. And there's like two feet of black smoke rolling across the entire ceiling of the bottom floor in this house we were renting. And um, I go up to get her. We run back downstairs and we can see flames coming through the wall. Mm. And we look back through our bedroom and there's just like a wall of flames where the laundry room is. Mm. And we just have to get out. And within five minutes, you know, we call the fire alarm. I'm in my pajamas. I'm in bare feet. Joma doesn't have any shoes on. We're just outside in the street, not even shoes on. Um, Things start exploding, you know. Um, So the house went up in flames. It was a total loss. Um, The only things I got out of that house fire were a... uh, like a laptop that was sitting on the floor. Mm. Um, I think Ijoma got maybe a bag of clothes that she had in storage also under the bed. And that's it, you know, lost everything in that house fire. Um, So yeah, 2020 was a lot, you know? And I think in a lot of ways, I'm still processing it. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, (laughs) and the other thing, the other main reason I put the album on hold I started out wanting to talk, tell this story about Seattle, Ethiopia. Lost friends, lost home, house fire. About a month later, a war pops off in Ethiopia, in mm-hmm. Tigray. Yeah. You know, and that conflict right there, and there's still ongoing conflicts with the, you know, the Oromo people, mm-hmm. the Amhara people. It's just like, it's all bad. And even still right now, like I get conflicting messages about what's going on back home. It's, yeah. You know, it's really hard to, yeah, it's hard to, to sift through it. Um, but the stories that started emerging out of mm-hmm. Tigray mm-hmm. in late November, 2020 mm-hmm. painted a story of like the horrors of war that I had never seen happen in my home country. Mm-hmm. And it's permanently altered the way I think of Ethiopia. Mm. And after that, I knew I couldn't go back and just like make an album right. about the Ethiopian community in Seattle as it grew. When my entire idea of what being an Ethiopian means is altered, wow. it's changed, yeah. you know? So I'm processing all of that on this album from the ashes of our homes. I'm talking about the house fire. Yeah. I'm talking about the loss of safety that we all went through in 2020, yes. the loss of people. Yeah. Um, 
and the loss of this idea of home. I think I yeah. spend about half the album yeah. talking about um, Ethiopia, you know, and and especially like the Tigrayan perspective, because my family's not from Tigray, mm -hmm. you know, um, but my friend B. Lynn Nahiwet, she is Tigrayan. And I she had has to, a really prominent voice throughout yeah, the whole album. Yeah, I needed her. I needed that perspective, you know, because um, she could speak to it in a personal way that I that I can't. So mm -hmm. I didn't even try to. I just gave her the space, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how that's kind of how the album came out to be. The last piece that I'll, I'll say about it is um, is I learned how to make beats on this mm. album, <laughs> mm -mm -mm. and that was something that happened this year. Um, Actually, I, I did most of the album this year. There's a few that started in 2020, but most of it came this year after I started making beats. It was like a big breakthrough. Um, and I made about 200 beats before writing to one. <laughs> and then, and then, yeah, and then started writing to them. So, so Man. most of the beats on it are also me, you know, Crazy. which is wild. I didn't realize that part. Yeah, nine, nine of them. Nine of them are my beats. Three are mochas. Two are vitamin D's, okay. Which vitamin is like for people that don't know. Like he's he's someone from Seattle that I really think everyone should know. Absolutely, you know. And Absolutely. he's mixed a lot of my material, but I actually never had anything released mm. where it was my voice on his beats until now. So that 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 meant a lot for me to have vitamin on this record. The intro and cut the, is the, that a is that a? I was gonna say the last one is the intro. The intro is Ijoma's brother, Aham. Uh -huh. Aham is a trumpet player, composer. Okay. Um, and that's all live instrumentation. That's yeah. hi, that's him on the trumpet and um and his band. A lot of people that he worked with playing playing all the instruments that you hear. Yeah. Amazing. And like the the way that it's all it's diff that's a very difficult thing to do. Mm. For like to rhyme to your own beats, it's weird. Yeah. Like I love making beats and I'm so curious about your beats. When you said cuz I heard I listened to your podcast and one of the podcasts you said that you that you would like to be a, a great producer. I I wonder about your beats. Like I I hope we get a listening session later. I want to hear some beats. I got some stuff. Yeah. But, but it's <laughs> it's hard to yeah. rhyme on your own beats. Mm. Like people that can do that, you know what I mean? Like it's very, very difficult to do. Mm. Like it's one thing to make a beat, it's another thing to rhyme on a song. Mm -hmm. But to 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 understand the entire presentation mm -hmm. myself, that's really hard for me to do. Interesting. So the people that are great at it, like Eric Sermon yeah. and um, you know, there are certain people that have been really great. I've, Dilla. Dilla. It's probably the best. Definitely. You know what I mean? Yeah. But even Pete Rock and Alchemist and mm -hmm. there are people that do it really well. And it's really I think that's that's its own, that's its own art form. Like mm -hmm. rhyming is one thing, making beats is one thing, and then rhyming on your own beat and creating a song entirely yourself. Yeah. Like, man, it's it's really difficult to be able to have that type of self-awareness, mm. both for the, you know, for the overall presentation of the song. It can be really tough to do. That's, you know, that's interesting you say it that way. I didn't think of it that way, mm. but it is why I'm more invested in this album emotionally. I think than any of my other albums is because I'm literally in the music in a different way. Yeah, you know, like I know where every part of the music came from. Right, there's more intention in things like interludes and the way songs musically sit together. Like in many ways, it feels like my first album, mm -hmm. even though I've released ten other albums before this. Yeah, this feels like a beginning to me, and and also like, 
I'm more emotionally invested in it. And I've also like, I think I texted you. I was like, damn, I wonder if he even liked the album. Cause like. I can't believe that I didn't. Well, first you sent it to me and the link expired. <laughs> right, right, right. It was right. just so embarrassing. Cause you're good. like, man, like when your friends send you stuff, I'm like yeah. I know the feeling of being on the other end of that. Like, yeah. all right, I'm going to send my album, you yeah. know. And especially when it's another artist, you're like, all right, I'm doing it. You push it, you watch it upload, and you're like, all right, nothing I can do about it now. But there's a, there's, there's this feeling, though, of like, you know, when it's your beats, it's like, okay, I like these beats, but maybe everybody else is like, like, like I have imposter syndrome. Because I got people like Vitamin D on the record, who's like right. a master producer that's made, been making beats since the 90s. That's why I've never and really he, done anything with my beats. And here I am with like I've been making beats for less than a year and, yeah. and and I put my beats next to his like maybe everyone's gonna see through this like maybe maybe these beats are weak like I don't know like I have all these things in my head you know what I mean so yeah, yeah. <laughs> well I, I think that it's just you did such a masterful job at the full presentation you know that Thank it just you. feels so it feels so good and that all of the music sounds so good together and especially just the ability to pull from your personal life. And like you said, like that, there's something about that detail of being outside with no shoes on. Yeah. You know what I mean? That I, I was really, that's like a very visceral thing, mm. you know? Mm. And then also tying together the narrative of just the, the, the kind of through line of home. Yeah. And what is home really? Uh, mm -hmm. and, and then connecting it with fire. Mm -hmm. because that was a time that we saw. So, so I, I was in South Minneapolis during that time, during yeah. the George Floyd thing. Yeah, and I mentioned that too. Like, yeah. you, you, like while while our house was going up in flames, yeah. people are getting tear gassed in yeah. protests around the country. Yeah. And here in Seattle, there was also a, a forest fire, mm -hmm. literally at the same time. Mm -hmm. The time our house went up in fire, flames, we were inside trying to avoid the smoke that was already outside. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then you just pull it all together so masterfully. Yeah, um, so you talk about this. You do talk about Palestine on the record. I do. But and that was before. Yes. October seventh. Yes, it was. And one of the things that I love so much about that is the way that you're able to to universalize um, the experience of people who have been colonized. Mm. You know, like mm. when I first started traveling. So I mean, you know, I grew up in communities that were very like pan-African and very like black radical tradition, right. everything from the 5%ers in the nation of Islam to, like I said, like pan-African, mm -hmm. like that was my experience growing up. And so I, I feel like my whole childhood, I had a good understanding of what happened to the children of enslaved Africans in right. the, here in this country. Then I went to Malaysia mm -hmm. for the first time when I was like 18. Mm. And they were saying, yeah, our, our country is only one third ethnically Malay and then one one third Indian and one third Chinese. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. How did that happen? And they're like, oh, uh, the European colonizers put people on boats and brought them here. Yeah. And I was like, wait a minute, mm -hmm. what? Mm -hmm. Like this has happened to other people? Mm -hmm. Like I didn't know that. Yeah. And then I went to, you know, and then also like growing up around a lot of like Native American, First Nation, American yeah. Indian, you know. Yeah folks and i went to australia for the first time uh, and i met with the people in australia mm -hmm. and they were talking about the things that the colonizers did to them to mm -hmm. the to the indigenous people there mm -hmm. 
And I was like, I kept trying to say to them, because it was new to me. Right. I'm like, these are the exact same things they did. And they're mm -hmm. like, yeah, we, we know. They're like, yes, yeah. nephew. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Well, yeah. I just realized like, oh, they do these same things all over the world. That's right. And you start realizing the, the just the global reality of mm -hmm. settler colonial white supremacist mm -hmm. colonize like it's it's such a global force you know That's what right. i mean and the the way that you tie it all together through the use of these like really personal ideas of home mm -hmm. of fire of being displaced yeah. of like you know coming to a new like you know the the elders saying like we left the other place because it's war and then we come here yeah, we're and we're put in neighborhoods where there's there's it's war here mm -hmm. you know because of price and and all these other different factors people moving around throughout the globe and just like mm -hmm. never having a feeling of home mm -hmm. but the way that you tied that to palestine mm. and i love the fact that you said everybody is so cool with being so progressive and radical and all that stuff until you start talking about white supremacy and Israel yeah. and Palestine. It's exactly the line. Like yeah. those are the two things that like, these are the lines that we draw. Until mm -hmm. you critique Zionism or police, I believe that was Zionism the line. Zionism and police, yeah, yeah man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't even necessarily have a question, but just yeah. I, like, I love the fact that you, sh that you centered those in ways that you did and then it also feels divinely inspired time-wise yeah i could talk about where it comes from yeah please um so i mentioned earlier i didn't know any ethiopian rappers before me mm -hmm. the people that inspired me within hip-hop mm -hmm. to tell my story mm -hmm. and to and and that yo your experience as an ethiopian american in a black American art form, in a black American neighborhood, like these experiences do not contradict. The first person who kind of like demonstrated that for me mm. is a Palestinian poet by the name of Suher Hamad. Oh, Suher Hamad. Like Suher Hamad. Shout out to Suher Hamad. Like if if I hadn't read her book, Born Palestinian, Born Black, mm. in the late 90s, mm. I don't know how my evolution as an MC would have even formed. Wow. And I would say she also is the introduction to my learning about Palestine, you know? Mm. So huge shout out to Suher Hamad. I would say the other group is the Isang Mahal Arts Collective, which mm. is a Filipino arts collective based here in Seattle. A lot of people know Gio from Blue Scholars. Gio was a part of Isang Mahal way before Blue Scholars came out. And it was, yeah, it's just this radical like Filipino arts collective that had an open mic in the international district every month. And they were another group of people that were my age, a little bit more accessible than Suhair, that were talking about within hip hop and within spoken word, which also like in that time period, I feel like spoken word and hip hop were really like right next to each other. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Like spoke like spoken word artists would become rappers and, and back and forth, you know? Um, they would talk about growing up in Beacon Hill where I grew up and having a grandmother that spoke a different language and what that meant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so through Song Mahal, through Suher Hamad, I, I feel like they they really inspired me to tell my whole story in hip hop, right? Um, and then later on in life, um, my friend Rahwa, who passed away, um, she ran an Eritrean restaurant in the Central District called Hidmo. Um, Hidmo was a really hugely important part of my life. Um, I was there the day that Rahwa decided she was going to buy Hidmo. Mm. Um, 
uh, she ran the space for four years. I called it a community center, cleverly disguised as an Eritrean restaurant mm-hmm. in the Central District. Mm-hmm. It was a place where a lot of people, like The Satisfaction had their first show ever in the mm-hmm. Hidmo. You know, like uh, it was a place for all ages, hip hop shows, African music. Um, it was a place where different community organi- organizers met. It was just this hub, this meeting ground that was not a nonprofit at all. But it succeeded where a lot of nonprofits failed. Mm. Um, I learned through that, by the way. This is just a tangent. I'm going to give you a lot of tangents That's today. Great. That um, I learned that with nonprofits, they create like a system where your organization is accountable to funders instead of accountable to people. Yeah. With Hidmo, they were accountable to people mm-hmm. that came through the door. And one of those people that came through the door is assistant by the name of Hanin, who was a part of a group called Students for Justice in Palestine. Mm. And they needed a venue because they were bringing a hip hop group called Damn mm. to Seattle, you know? And through that connection, I ended up meeting and, you know, spending some time with Dam, with Abir, Sabrina the Witch, uh, Muhammad Al-Farah from PR out of Gaza, Jackie Reem Saloom. Um, we did the the film screening for Slingshot Hip Hop. And just in those conversations and like meeting all these Palestinian hip hop artists here in Seattle, like those conversations are in this song that you're talking about on my album. Right. You know, I believe it was Suhel from Dam who said that, um, I think, I think, I can't wait to have a conversation with Suhel. We talked recently. I'm trying to I'm trying to have him on my podcast this this upcoming year. I just did a song with him. Yeah, I know for for uh for oh. the Mo soundtrack. Yeah. yeah, it's dope. Um, I didn't really get to like build with them. Like yeah. basically, Mo was reused. Common scored it. Uh huh. So Common, like they they chose that song for the end credits. Okay. And then Mo was like, I'm just gonna last minute. He just asked me. He was like, Will you rap on it? Oh wow. So I didn't get to actually work with them. It was like one of their oh, so songs. Y'all weren't, we just, y'all weren't even in the room. No, but uh, uh, hopefully soon. I can't wait to. Have you met them? No. Oh, I can't wait till you meet them. Like I, lo- I love, it. I love those brothers and, and, and now sister too because Misa joined the group later. Mm. Um. So so hell from damn when, when we met, I think he was. I, I don't want to put words into this brother's experience, but I felt like it stood out to him that I was mm. Ethiopian mm. and that I was outspoken for Palestine even then, like mm. in 2007, 2008. And he told me the reason why that stood out to him, um, that there were a lot of Ethiopian, for one, it was originally Ethiopian artists in Israel that kind of put them onto hip hop. Uh-huh. But okay. then like they fell to the other side and they couldn't be friends no more. And he said that at the checkpoints, a lot of times when it's an Ethiopian like IDF officer, they're much worse to the Palestinian folks. Always. And and that that thought, that idea always messed with me because I felt like, and that's 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 what that song is about. It's 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 called an open letter to my cousins in Israel. I'm looking at the situation in Palestine and I'm thinking about it honestly. Like if I was in this situation, a coincidence mm-hmm. that I'm born in the United States. Mm-hmm. Some of my family went to Europe. Mm-hmm. Some of my family went to different cities here. And I actually have cousins in Israel who have kids in the IDF. You know, like this could have been my reality, you know? And I think about that, you know? And I think about what solidarity means. Like, I have this deep belief that solidarity starts with knowing yourself mm-hmm. and leaning into, you know, privilege and leaning into, you know, uncomfortable conversations yeah. and just taking an honest look at the situation of Ethiopian Eritrean soldiers in Israel. Like they are like the 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 oppression is real for them too. 
Yeah. They also are completely oppressed well, in that, in that nation. That's why a lot of times, like, you know? oppressed people in a white colonizer situation where they get to have some proximity to power, and a lot of times it's their yeah. bodies being on the front line with a weapon. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they will go out of their way to show that, like, look, I'm part of, I'm, I'm part of this. You know what yeah. I mean? So, like, the song Black Cop and things like that, like... It's 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 my version of Black Cop, mm -hmm. <laughs> but but I'm trying to do it with compassion because I feel like yeah because I feel like so there was a situation like while we were having Black Lives Matter marches here in the United States, mm -hmm. they were having Black Lives Matter marches in Israel because it was an Ethiopian yeah. Israeli um, uh, uh, he was a soldier mm -hmm. that was beat brutally on camera, mm -hmm. you know, in the and and. People started marching out there too. They started shutting down freeways in Israel too. But the connection that I didn't see publicly made was like, if we want to get free from this, mm -hmm. Palestinian people need to be free too. Yes. You know, which is the line in the chorus or yeah. the, the, the chant at the end, you know? You know, I've, I've always heard in talking to Palestinian elders yeah. that, in, that there were Ethiopian people in Israel mm -hmm in the 60s and 70s that were inspired by the Black Panthers because of the racism they were experiencing in Israel, yeah. that they actually started a chapter of something that was a lot like the Black Panthers. I heard about it in the 90s too. Yeah, I heard about it in the 90s too. It's a lot of conversations I, I would like to have globally, but you know, and I don't, I don't know who's having those conversations. You yeah. know, if anyone listens to this podcast, <laughs> yeah. wants to connect. I've always like, wanted you know, to know more about that. Yeah. Me too. Because it's one of the things that you hear people talk about a lot. You hear mm -hmm. like, you know, um, black people that live in Israel and the way that they're treated. Yeah. And, and the, you know, so for you to say that, and then also that you're rethinking your relationship with Ethiopia through the lens, you know, of, of what happened in the last year there. Yeah. Is, is really, it's interesting, man, because one of the things that, you know, so much of my audience is white. Right. So you already know my whole thing, but like, you know, being, I was born to white parents, I'm an albino, they didn't understand that, black people did, mm -hmm. from the time I was a really little kid, to the point where I still am in therapy about it. Right. Like to me, black always felt safe, even when I was have to fight somebody. Yeah. It's like, it's still at the end of the day, we're both human beings. Right. You know what I mean? Even people that don't like me, <laughs> like, it's like yeah. we're still human. Yeah. I know that, it's just a given. Mm -hmm. Like we're two human beings, like we're so human that we're gonna box now. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh. There's something very human about that. But to me, like white always felt really unsafe because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm not so sure that I'm a human being, mm, you know. And yeah. so then this whole kind of thing of like me growing up and, and my parents and my grandparents are white. Mm -hmm. And but the people that love me and I love them are black and I've got this worldview and all this stuff. And then to become a rapper and being on tour on the one hand with Rakim and all those kind of people and going out and earning it every night. Right. But then going out with Atmosphere, there's like this whole audience of people that's just like, you're what we've been waiting for forever. So those are the people that occupy, that, those are the people that really showed up in big numbers and stuff. Right. So like a big part of the audience. So it was actually Shaka that helped me understand this is a good thing. All these things you've been learning up till now is for you to be able to talk to these people. Right. And so one of the big things to that I always am trying to, work on and relate to people about is that for all of us in this system of um, politicized, militarized concept of race, mm -hmm. 
that every single person has to have this kind of like very real lived negotiation. I don't like the word interrogate, but I mm -hmm. but I understand why people use it. Mm -hmm. But there has to be like the, a very real uh, self account of like taking oneself to account and being really real with the, all the different layers of my own relationship with what's happening in the world. Yeah. And people of color are forced to do it all the time, forced to do it all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like they're like, my wife is one of the most amazing people in the world. She's black and Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. There's this whole thing with like, if I go to Puerto Rico, am I really Puerto Rican? Cause I grew up in the Bronx and I don't really speak. I had I, that I had that same fear about going to Ethiopia until I went. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, we went to Puerto Rico mm -hmm. and then we went and visited like the like an ancient burial site. Mm. And the <laughs> the guy that was doing the tour was from the island and he was like, New Yorkans are not Puerto Ricans. They don't speak the language, no. they don't so and so, so and so. Yeah. And I'm standing there like, ah, like I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this moment. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we're just kind of like, hey, but what about the people that do come here looking right. to, so she actually had someone say that to her, mm. but then her time on the Island and like relating to, you know, mm -hmm. the people there and our daughters and all that kind of stuff. And then we go to Africa and in Africa, it's like somebody told my wife who's very brown skin that she was white. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just like, we know you're white. Like we know you're not from here. I got that. You know what I mean? When I was out there. Yeah. And so, and then, but then also, I think my wife is objectively a very beautiful woman, mm. but constantly dealing with like, is my nose too much like this? Is my, all this stuff around, is my hair this? And is my, all people of color are going through that at every moment. And then I think when, when European American people, when white people come into these conversations, it's like, wait, I have to view myself in a racialized sense. And like something might be wrong with yeah. me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so to to have you having this the next level of the conversation too of like what does it mean to be to to love where i'm from to be oppressed for where i'm from to have all these different mm -hmm. these different relationships like you step into a different place you're almost a different person mm -hmm. with the way you relate in that situation but then also saying like but my people also have the potential to harm others that's it and to abuse others that's it Yep. because that's the way that it works when you've been oppressed when you've been harmed when you've been abused mm -hmm. if you are in any kind of situation of power you know like if you own a dog you might start kicking the dog right it like any bit of power that you have you're taller than somebody you're you know yeah. not to mention you have a country and you've got a military and you've yeah. got you know and it's it's one of the things that i see happening for Jewish homies mm. in this particular yeah, moment. Yeah, 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 totally. Like it it feels like there's a there's a something happening in the diaspora especially of European descendant mm -hmm. Jews. Right. Where some people are having full emotional breakdowns of like what the hell does all this mean? And you see some of them. Oh, for sure. And some of them are within hip hop. Like some of them are people mm -hmm. that have been around hip hop for a while. Mhm. Mm but then you also see the Sim Kearns of the world. Yes. <laughs> like, yo, man. I'm yes. like, yo, Sim was saying that they were having problems booking a tour because of um, uh, uh, security. Yeah. And I was like, man, I wish I could, I wish I personally could be your security. Right? Yeah. Like, Sim's I wish brilliant. I could. 
Sims brilliant. And here in Seattle, like, you know, the organization that I would say is doing the most militant actions, like mm-hmm. shutting things down. Well, maybe not say the most, but like one of the groups is doing the most militant is Jewish Voices for Peace. Like they're going hard. Like they shut down the Space Needle and had me and Ijoma speak at it. Like, uh, you know, in the levels of- Oh, that's the, I saw the footage of that. Yeah, okay. yeah, they shut down the Space Needle for a day to get Senator Patty Murray's attention to get her to call for a ceasefire. Before that, they showed up at her house. <laughs> you know yeah. You know what I mean? And like, yeah. it's Jewish Voices for Peace. They're going the hardest, you know? I keep track of white people that like speak truth to power yeah. from within. Yeah. They are, they've been winning for a long time. Right, <laughs> like the, like the Jewish people that that start speaking, and it because it's not like they're like, well, let me quick go go do research mm-hmm. and get on the right side of history. Mm-hmm. Like this is something they clearly have been living, yeah, for a long time. Like Sim just doesn't start being Sim one day, right? No, no, Sim's been having those conversations. He's been doing that work for a while. Like it's it's obvious, but I think what you're speaking to, like people have people have a really hard time, and you know, I've I see it with men. Mm. You know, this is another place where like like men of color, mm-hmm. you know, who are oppressed by a system that learn about patriarchy one day and like, oh, like I'm a victim in this in this situation, but I'm also a victimizer when it comes over here. Like people have a really hard time with the idea of like realizing like, oh, I'm not always a victim. Like I can also I've I've dealt with abuse. My people have gone through horrible abuses. Mm-hmm. And my people can, and it's not even my people with the Israel. It's a state. I, like, 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 let me be clear. Like, no one's, right. you know, but. Yeah, that's not a peoplehood. It's not a peoplehood. We're talking about a state here, you know. Yeah. But I think in general, like, people do have a hard time with the idea of, like, my people can be abusive. Mm-hmm. My people can be a victimizer as well, you know. Yeah. Even though we've been victimized. And one doesn't erase the other, you know. Like the like anti-Semitism is also on the rise. Yeah, that's a very real thing. Right, you know what I mean. But it's not. It's on the rise because white supremacy is on the rise. Yes, yes. like anti-Semitism has been on the rise for a minute. Yeah, not because people are in the streets saying "Free Palestine." No, it's because white supremacists are right. are you know yeah being feeling more emboldened by all the various. Uh, people in power around the world like global white supremacy is like you know is taking power in so many different countries including this one you know yeah yeah people feeling like more more vocal and feeling like they have an opportunity to start yeah yeah to start doing their thing so and i mean those are the same people that are islamophobic and those are the same exactly. people that are exactly yeah yeah the people that are are anti-semitic are also islamophobic are also you know it's it's the same thing you know, but I think it's it's this weird like divide and conquer thing, man. Like you know, if yeah, and it's, I, it's a it's a really frustrating thing. Like, so, and some people are just seem committed to like not hearing the other side. Like they seem so like just deeply invested in this idea of Israel, the state. You know, like yeah, I mean, it, you know, and. One of my things, so like I relate to Jewish people and communities on so many different levels. Yeah. And one is the religious thing. Mm-hmm. Because I'm an Orthodox Muslim, I really like try to live the Sharia. Like mm-hmm. I do. Mm-hmm. I, you know, struggle. It's not easy to do. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? And so there's a lot of times that like I'm in. So like when I'm in, I only eat halal meat if I can, but I'll eat kosher meat. Right. And so there are times where, like, in Minneapolis, like, I knew, you know, kosher meat, uh, kosher butchers and things like that. Mm -hmm. And did all kind of, like, interfaith work with rabbis and, you know. Yeah. 
So for me, I care about and and you know Islam doesn't mm-hmm. ne- doesn't negate the religions that came before it. Right. Like Islam is a is a religion that when you say there's no God but Allah, what it means is not that all the other gods are fit, but it's like mm-hmm. all of the mm-hmm. everybody's internal like quest and seeking to be connected to the divine mm-hmm. is all one, and Allah is the 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 one that we're all looking to connect with universally. Right. And when you say that Muhammad is the messenger of God, it's understood that Muhammad is in a line, a worldwide network of messengers and prophets. Mm. Every people had a prophet. Every people had messengers. Every people had reminders Mm. without exception. Mm. So it's like all of the wisdom in the the First Nations traditions is all connected to Islam. Mm. Once you have that that type of understanding. It's beautiful. But but Judaism specifically Mm -hmm. is a religion that's understood as being valid, legitimate. Yeah. We're not necessarily legitimate to them, mm-hmm. but they're legitimate to us, right. you know? Right. And so I relate to the Jewish community in that way, um, as well as also, you know, in so many other ways, man. But so I know very like religious Jewish people mm-hmm. that grew up as part of their culture, like this this beautiful idea of Israel. Like it is a concept in the tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And naming that particular state the same name, to me, I see it as no different than like, Mm. the idea of the caliphate is very real in Islam. Mm. Like the idea of having, just like most traditions are like, what if we had a a righteous government? It's a beautiful idea. Right. <laughs> if, it, if it actually like the, happens. The Rastas have yeah. it. And the, like so many people have like, mm-hmm. what if we had a righteous system in place? Uh-huh. I mean, even the the organizers and activists have it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like the idea of community that we try to, yeah. the best practice of community and, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, that we try to practice. It That is a real, but when it's brought into practice, mm-hmm. that's a very different thing. And, a, you know, yeah. So like this idea of caliphate, that's what ISIS was pulling from. Mm. ISIS was like, we're going to be the, the caliphate. We're establishing the caliphate. Mm. And there are certain people that believe that about Saudi Arabia. Mm. And it's like, man, most of the Muslims in the world are like, yeah, we understand the idea, but that's not, that's not it. That's not it. Thank you so much for tuning into the Travelers Podcast, for watching and listening. We really appreciate it week in and week out. From the very beginning, whether it was the musical journey, the live shows, the records, the CDs, uh, the freestyle sessions, the battles, and now into the podcasting, the lectures that I've given across the country and around the world, the classes that I've taught, the online learning series, All this stuff that we do is about exploring and expressing what's going on inside of us, but then also having that be a conversation with the people that share in it and contribute to it and shape it by listening to it and by supporting it. You're a part of it and you've always known that. Whether this is your first time checking out the podcast or whether you've been listening to my music, going to my shows for 20 something years, you know that you are absolutely part of it. Uh, we share something that's going on inside of us. Our guests share something. We have an experience. And then your 
support of it and your feedback and you being part of it, you absolutely shape it. The way that we're doing that now is if you go to brotherali.com in the join section or brotherali.com slash join, you'll see the caravan. The caravan is is where we not only share this growing kind of library that we're building, our own kind of streaming platform for rare and exclusive and unreleased music and videos and live shows and talks and conversations and presentations and all kind of stuff that we share in that section. But also there's a way to communicate. So at the $5 level, you get in, you get access to all that stuff. There's Ask Me Anything episodes. I'm about to drop one that's a Nobody Ask Me Anything episode, which are just like comments that people share, things that I see people say about me, assumptions that people have, things that people have never asked me that frankly are offensive. <laughs> but I'm like, yo, I think because I present myself mostly in a polite way, people only want to talk to me in polite ways for the most part. But people talk about me and about things I care about and say and do in ways that are not that. And so I think I'm going to do an episode that we'll share just in the caravan of the less than polite things people say to me and about me. Uh, So that'll be in there. But there's also ways to connect. We also have a $100 level that is a legitimate community space. We keep it uh, limited um, you know, we make sure that it is somewhat exclusive because we want to have a real sense of authenticity, of being able to be vulnerable with each other, of uh, being able to know that there's a level of privacy there. And we're all sharing in it together. So we've got folks in there. We connected on a Slack channel where we talk to each other on a regular basis. People are part of each other's lives. And because I come from, I speak from and to so many different communities and for so many different communities and walks of life, there's people in there that wouldn't know each other and wouldn't have this level of real intimate connection if it wasn't for coming together in this way. So it's a very, very beautiful thing. And I really am grateful to be able to do it and to facilitate it. So you go to brotherali.com slash join, or just go to brotherali.com, get in the join section, get down with the caravan, be part of the people that really, really make this show happen, this work happen, this music continue, this movement happen. And we appreciate you very much. The connection that you make, you draw between the personal and the global, yeah, you know what I mean? Of us all having to have these like very real and visceral and painful and joyous and healing mm-hmm. and hurtful mm-hmm. ongoing dialogue with self and with community and with God and with culture and art and you know what I mean? That we have so much to do within yeah. our own selves. That's it, that's where it starts. That's, you know, and, and I feel like if we don't do that work, internally we're not going to be able to do that work in community you know like i'm i'm just a real big believer in the micro is the macro you mm-hmm. know if we can if we can figure things out in our small micro communities we can we can use those ideas and those lessons and and share them and we can all become a part of a bigger movement but we got to figure it out within ourselves and the first place that starts is within our within ourselves right you know that's you know it's Gracely Boggs, you know, the revolution starts here, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's always been something that I've tried to do with my art is, um, yeah, I'm trying to figure things out, you know, yeah. publicly. And as I figure it out, it gets in the music, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah. I also try not to be too preachy. I hope it doesn't come off that way, but you know, it's um it's in, I don't I don't think so at all. Right. I don't think so. It's one of the things about like right. the type of music that we make mm-hmm. is that people see it as being corny. Mm-hmm. They're corny for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, to me, it's like to me, it's like I, I understand why uh-huh. people would say that because like, but it's not different than like gangster music mm. or like street music. Nah, where I think of them very much connected, actually. Uh, yeah, really, really. Yeah. So, where it's like it's a it's a dangerous life mm-hmm. when you actually live it. That's it. That's it. And so, but so many people are afraid to live it. That's it. And so they take up the the outer the trappings of it. Yeah. And then when you take up the trappings of it, but you're not actually living it, then that's very corny. That's when it gets corny. And I feel like, you know, real recognizes real. Yeah. You can tell when somebody is just like saying buzzwords yeah. or dropping cliche after cliche on you. You can tell when it's just like this is an act. And the same way, you know, people used to clown studio gangsters, they're studio conscious rappers. <laughs> You know? There's not as many of them as there used to be. There was for a minute, though. Like, oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, and, and then there's people on the uh, yeah. that, that you know, talk the talk on Twitter and things like yeah, that. And mm-hmm. Online. Yeah. Like, online activists and, you know, that whole thing. Yeah, I, you know, you already know I've been off Twitter for a while. Like, <laughs> I don't even know what happens there anymore. <laughs> Man, yeah. I see Instagram, though. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, it's wild. Like some folks just took that Twitter energy and, and put it into IG. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can see that too. Yeah, but man, it's so it's such a like. A lot of it is corny unless you're able to determine what's real and what's not. And like you said, it takes mm-hmm. some degree of of realness to be able to identify what's true here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So for like somebody who never was around a, or a street environment, right? To them, it's all the same. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To them, there's no difference between, I don't want to start saying names, but like there's no difference between somebody who just completely constructs their whole life yeah. versus a person who really lived that. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think, I've been thinking about him all day, but Scarface mm-hmm. is like one of my big, big yeah. in, like influences. Yeah. And, and what I love about Scarface, and I always think about him in this conversation because like you can tell that that brother lives with trauma. And he's yes. not, and he's not afraid to speak to yes. it, you know. It's, Since the '80s, yeah. Like I, I, I really feel like Face and and Ghetto Boys in general were like some of the first to really talk about mental health. Absolutely, you know, in in hip hop, yeah. you know. So, I that those are the kind of things I look for when people are telling these street stories. Is like, right. wh- where does this hurt you? Yes, because you don't go through this without scars. Yeah, you know. And if you're not speaking to those scars and if you're try, not trying to work through them in some way, I kind of don't believe you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And also just the downside of what that life is, mm-hmm. that it is fun and exciting mm-hmm. when you're in those moments. Also. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And if it's going well during the years that it's going well, mm-hmm. it probably feels really good. It does. Mm-hmm. I've, I've I've been up close. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've had, I've had uh, you know, hobbies that are just like... Here you go, man. Here's a leather jacket I'm not wearing right. anymore. I mean, be like, oh. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Man. Yeah. I, I, it's so weird. Like, when you are around, like, when you're around that life, especially like when it was happening when in music in the 90s, when it was showing up in music. Mm-hmm. And then you go, and then you go around, like, you go to a different school or something, and the people there listen to the music, but they've never experienced yeah, it. Yeah, man. You just start realizing, like, man, this is so. Mm-hmm. Strange, 
And it's the same yeah. for music that I think is like overtly talking about healing and growing and building, mm -hmm. you know, whether you call it conscious or whatever. And that's 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 what I was saying, saying with Scarface is I as I feel like there's scars there too. And when I don't see when I don't see people like pushing those growing edges in their music, like you can just tell, you know. Yeah. Or I can, you know. Yeah. Same with spirits, same with religious people, spiritual people. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, man, mm -hmm. There, there's, there's, there's scars in all of this stuff. Like you're not getting through anything in this plane. Yeah. Especially if you're trying to, to improve self and improve anything. Yeah. Like if you're trying to build something. Yeah. Man, building comes with scars, man. There's just no way. And I want to be clear, like, I'm not knocking that kind of music that doesn't come with those scars. I just don't feel it the same. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. That's something that I have to like, like as I'm as I'm growing, and also like as a DJ on KXP, like mm. I uh, try not to knock what people make. I might not play it. I mean, it might not be for me, but I try not to knock it. I realize that we're not all wired the same way, right? You know, and not everyone does music for the same reasons. Yeah, and that's okay. It just might not be for me, but I don't have to knock it. You know. Since I discovered that, I think we all, like, especially those of us that came up in the 90s, like, yeah. we had to, because we had a real sense. And it, I think it's like, that's a, that's part of community. Mm -hmm. Like, community requires there to be some defense and some boundaries and some, there's like a warrior spirit around, yeah. this is what it means to be in, in this. And when, when you're was, not this, that's that's something different. When I was younger, I wanted to battle everyone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I felt people were like fronting, when I felt people were inauthentic, I wanted to battle them more. Yeah. I wanted to stop people from rapping. Yeah. Like that version of me died a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I but I came up from that, you know. Yeah. I learned how to rap that way, you know. <laughs> and then at some point there's like, a oh, there's other people just doing other things. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. And I think it's something about like having to get serious about it ourselves. Absolutely. That's just like, man, I don't have to, if I'm going to take what I'm doing seriously, yeah. then what everybody else is doing is not my business. That's, that's not right. my focus. That's right. I just have to be Bennett when it comes to all that mm -hmm. and just do what I'm doing. Exactly. Once I started doing that though, the amount of like just music and voices and all that stuff that I actually mm -hmm. is even on my radar, yeah. it got really small. Mm -hmm. but it means so much more now. Yeah. yeah. And it has nothing to do with what other people like or don't like. Mm -hmm. Did you go through this? I'm, I'm sure you did. But like, as as I got more and more into doing my own craft, that the music I listened to started to be people that I actually knew. Mm. Did you go through that as well? The music you listened to? Yeah, like the music that you, that you find yourself listening to on your own time. Like, I, I'm a person that listens to my friends a lot, you know, their music. Like, yeah. I, yeah, I think there is something yeah. to that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the mm -hmm. the rap album that I've listened to the most in the past, maybe the, it might even be yours, is the only one. That's wild. It's the only one. <laughs> Dang. It's the only one. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's another hip hop out. So, Here's a little flex. I have there's there's new Yasin Bay music coming, Amazing. and I have that. Amazing. <laughs> so it's wait. like those are the two things I've been listening oh, to. Oh, that's dope. So I don't know like when that you never know like with yeah, him. You never know. Or like if it'll if be it, if it will. I've heard so many rumors of different projects. Like he had a project with Manny Fresh at one point. I don't know if it ever. 
They did. Yeah, they recorded music and yeah, yeah he lived. Yes, he lived in um New in New Orleans for a little bit. Yeah, but I don't think I think I heard one song and I don't even think it was released. Who produced the Dollar Day for New Orleans? That was I think that was a mixtape joint. I think that was a um was it a Wayne beat or I feel like that was somebody else's beat okay. that he just because people were doing mixtapes in that era. Yeah, that's and, a classic for man. sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah, the, Katrina, Katrina clap. clap. Yeah, Ooh, that yeah. was a, that's still a joint, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, I, I guess if I had to think about it, yeah, probably my friend's music is probably it's really high. I know that it's mm-hmm. really high on the list, and I when I feel that connection to it. I love when people surprise me too, though. Like, I don't know. So, the three years of like working at KXP, it really made me like dig and like look for mm. look for new artists to play all the time. So, I don't know what the percentage is now of like my friends' music that I listen to. But I know before like really getting involved as a DJ, it, there was like some years where it was mostly people I knew, you know, and people that I could relate to on an independent hip hop level, especially mm-hmm. like the early 2000s like i remember I, it was really hard for me to connect with like what mainstream hip-hop was doing those years mm-hmm. and i just hyper focused on what was happening in the independent world you know mm. and then obviously i just ended up meeting and becoming friends with a lot of the artists that were in my headphones you know yeah yeah during that time when there were artists that i like i've, I've always been a big jay-z and kanye west uh-huh. fan like yeah so i could always even though i didn't agree with like i don't agree, like yeah. jay-z especially that period yeah like we did not have the same worldview i don't even know if we do now right, right um but i will say that he's somebody to to go back to what we we're saying about scarface yeah he's somebody that i remember showing him so i have this one friend in particular who was in the street life and then mm-hmm. he became muslim mm-hmm. He's a person who, since he's been a Muslim, I don't know if he's ever missed one of the five daily prayers. Uh He's like one of the most just solid, Mm -hmm. dedicated, disciplined human beings. And he didn't listen to hip hop for a long time Mm -hmm. because he just was so much trying to just cleanse his palate and trying to get away from that life he was living. And at some point I remember saying to him, I know you're not trying to go back to this, but Jay-Z reminds me so much of you. Mm. Like the way he says things, the way he like mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. And then it, it took him about a year to listen, but he came and he was like, yo, mm-hmm. <laughs> he was like this guy. And he started calling him Sean. Like he knew uh-huh. him. He was like, man, uh-huh. what Sean said and so-and-so. <laughs> like, man. He puts a lot of himself in the music. Yeah, Jay-Z, I mean, Jay-Z is say, a master technician. Man, man, when he said, I hated me and everybody that invented crack. Yeah. It's just like, I know that feeling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know people who were succeeding mm-hmm. at selling drugs and absolutely hate. They were selling something that they hated in their core. I got someone in my mind right now as you're saying that. It, yeah. I remember, I mean, I went to, like I moved, so I would like go to different schools. And I went to a school where everybody was, it was a suburb school and everybody was listening to whatever hardcore music was out at that time. And they were talking about... Um, there was some song about what they used to call a strawberry, mm. like basically like women that were addi- had addictions okay. and would pay for it with sex. sex. Mm-hmm. And they were laughing about this thing. And this memory came to me where when I was like 13, 14, mm. I had an opportunity to lose my virginity to somebody that we knew's mother Wow! in a scenario like that. 
and I was terrified. Yeah. I, and they, everybody thought it was funny and it was like this big thing. And I was horrified. Mm -hmm. And I remember I cried and I was like, I don't want to do this. Right. You know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. so we just had to, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's like, man, hearing lines like that, I hated me and everybody that invented crack. And, and I mean, from the very beginning, mm -hmm. you hear him doing this like processing that we're talking yeah, about. Exactly. Of like, you know, what does it mean? Like, why, how did I end up like this? Mm -hmm. And searching for the answer. So that by the time you get to 444, yeah. it's like, man, this is a culmination. He's been, He's been on this journey. Searching for this. That's right. You know. Yeah. It's a beautiful album too. It really is, man. I'm somebody that was late to Jay-Z. I believe that. Yeah, I was late to Jay-Z. <laughs> I believe that. The reason, the reason is, is kind of funny too. I was a really big AZ fan. Okay. Do or die was like my like AZ's ill, man. I, that like I remember in '95, like I'm a little bit younger than you, so I was like, what was I? I was 14. Okay. When those albums came out, a AZ Do or Die and Tupac's Me Against the World, those two cassettes, okay, lived in my Walkman. And then this guy named Jay Z came out the next year. I thought that was weird too. Like man, it's the same name. Yeah, and then and then like. Wu Tang and Jay Z and even Biggie started coming up with Italian personas, mm -hmm. and as much as I liked those artists, because I was a Wu Tang and a Biggie fan too, I wasn't a fan of like the Wu Gambino phase of hip hop, Man. and and I felt like Jay kind of like fit into that, yeah. so I just outright rejected him and didn't listen to Reasonable Doubt when it was new, and it took some of my homies that I was making music with like five or six years later to really listen to Jay-Z again. They were like, nah, you're tripping. Like, listen to these lines. And then, and like, slowly I became a Jay-Z fan, you know? Yeah. Now now I think he's one of the best to ever do it, but I was late, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of us were. Really? Yeah. yeah. Me and Sadiq from Rhyme Series, the, the, when we first met each other, mm -hmm. we bought, because we were both kind of like the conscious dudes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. We were like the conscious Muslim dudes. We're like, everybody around us was like, we had all kind of different, all the parts of hip hop were part of Rhyme Sayers in those early mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. So it was like Los Nativos. And yeah, then, I remember them. Yeah. yeah. And Musab had a, Musab was like a conscious, also street. Like he right. would kind of go in and out of both worlds. Um, but me and Sadiq were like the Muslim dudes that didn't smoke or drink with the uh -huh. kufis on, uh -huh. just kind of like watching it all go down. And it was like the breakers and all that stuff. Yeah. And at one point, I can't remember which one of us said, that we were fans of like the Hot Boys uh -huh. and Jay Z, uh -huh. and then we were just like, "Yo, because they're ill, right?" And he was like, "Man, people don't realize it's yeah. hip hop, man." Yeah, <laughs> that was like one of the big because yeah. that was like that was something that you didn't vocalize in those circles at that time. Not at all. We were really big on freestyle fellowship too, and like mm. Project Blow. Like, so I, I don't know if you know this about me, but um. So I born and raised in Seattle. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in the 10th grade, so that would have been, it was the month Biggie died in 97, my family moved to Las Vegas. And I had three years of living in Vegas. Wow, I and, had no idea. Yeah, so. That's very different from Seattle. Very different and very much like an LA suburb. Yeah. Um, and it's also the first time I really started performing and rapping in front of people. All happened in Vegas. And it felt like, like there was a record store in Vegas called The Joint. That place saved my life. Mm. And right next door to it was a cool, I don't know if you if you ever met Cool DJ EQ or if you remember the beats and lyrics compilations that came out mm. like in the mid 90s. Mm. Uh, Hyro mm. was on it. Okay. Um, AC and Ab were all over it. Okay. Grouch was on it. Living Legends were on it. I know okay. you're on tour with them now. Um, but this guy, Cool DJ EQ, 
put it together. He was the first person to ever record me when I was 16. Wow. You know what I mean? So, like, the blowed had a huge influence on me. The first time I ever spent money on a concert was to see AC and Ab mm. when I came up here mm. um, in 99. It was their first show, I think, here. It was definitely AC Loans. I think Ab had been up here one other time. And, um, yeah, just that whole scene was, like, it was really foundational and influential on me. You know what I mean? And, like, yeah, you couldn't tell me they weren't the best rappers in the world at that point. So that, you know... It really had a big impact on my style. And a lot of my generation, I would say, in Seattle, you know, like Macklemore was at those shows too, you mm. know what I'm saying? Like, we we all kind of had similar influences, you know? Yeah. Man, the, the element of this album that always gets me is mm. like, what do you do when home doesn't feel like home, That's when right. home attacks you, yeah. when you feel like home is out to get you? Yeah. Is it still home? Like, what do you, you know, and for us, I've had that experience many times, you know what I mean? But mm. the most recent one was when we went through all of this, the the South Minneapolis version of the pandemic mm -hmm. was like the pandemic that I had been like struggling with the kind of the business side of, of being with Rhyme Sayers. And then in the wake of the uprising, there was a... I don't like the word cancel culture. Yeah, me either. Um, but there was a there was a a reckoning. You don't want to say that either. I mean, I, yeah, I don't I don't know if that like that doesn't necessarily feel like it describes uh -huh. that thing either. But there was a conversation. Okay. I don't know. I yeah. mean, there was, you know, but there was there was a hashtag. Okay. <laughs> there was a phenomenon and a hashtag about yeah. Rhyme Sayers that I was neither directly included in or excluded from. And so for so long in the Twin Cities, like for a long time, I felt like every time I left my house, I was going to see somebody that was going to recognize me mm -hmm. for something good that I had done. Mm -hmm. I felt like celebrated in my community in a way that nobody has, it should feel entitled to. Right. But it was from years of work in the Muslim community, in the activist organizing community, in the, you know, the, the music and culture space, in the, you know, teaching and mentoring and all this stuff. Like every time I left my house, Somebody was going to be like, yo, brother, I'll leave. Yell from a car. Mm -hmm. Somebody was going to pay for my dessert. Somebody was going to, like, every, and then, mm -hmm. man, in that moment, it felt, it felt to me, I, I don't feel this way now, but I didn't see anybody be like, well, we don't mean him, no. Uh, or what about all of the things that he's been a part of? Or what about right. all the, what a, like, no kind of counter narrative at all. So I'm like, man, even if people aren't attacking me directly, yeah. even if, um, you know, even if there isn't this, uh, this kind of thing, what I felt like I got to see in that moment is that nobody felt like defending me in any kind of, in any kind of meaningful way mm -hmm. or in any way at all. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it, it was, so that feeling of like yeah. is this my community yeah you know what i mean yeah is this my home yeah uh i feel like if the i feel i i want to believe that if the roles were reversed and somebody was 
speaking ill of somebody that I had known nothing but good from. Right. You know what I mean? That I would that I would have responded differently than that. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to say. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so one of the many things that's kind of like going through my body and heart and mind and everything when I listen to the record is that particular idea uh-huh. or that concept of like what is what is home? What is home? Yeah. And the idea of like your your physical home burning down, and we had a house that we our house didn't burn down, mm-hmm. but it felt like important for us to not be in Minnesota yeah. anymore. Yeah, I was just like, I don't know how to feel about this place. You need some you need some time to heal. Mm. I think that's what that is. It's very different, but it reminds me of a like I went through a really bad breakup <laughs> when I was uh, thirty. And the breakup was in this neighborhood, what they're in right now in South Seattle. Mm. And I remember that everything, like every block, every corner, everywhere I went reminded me of this relationship, of this heartache, of this pain, of this person. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And for me to heal, healing just takes time. Mm-hmm. I had to get out, you know? And it seems like that might have been the move for you too. Like you needed some some time away to heal. We got an opportunity to leave. And like once we found out about Turkey, I don't remember exactly why, mm-hmm. but it felt like the, it was a two-week period from the time when we were like, okay, we're going, mm-hmm. and when we had to go. And me and my wife had bought a house and raised our kids there and all this stuff, and mm-hmm. we had to be out of that house in two weeks. Ooh, so two like weeks, wow. most of the most of the things that we had ended up either getting donated or just thrown away or, mm. you know what I mean? So also yeah. most of, like basically we went to Turkey with six duffel bags. Yeah. And that's what we owned that's from, what you own right from that whole 15 years before that. You no, know what I mean? No storage locker. There is a storage thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's a small storage thing and there's like a couple of boxes of like keepsakes and stuff Got like you. that. Yeah. But, you know. I mean, wardrobe and, uh, you know, yeah. the books and the records and all that kind of stuff. Like, it's gone. Yeah. Our stuff isn't, it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And now it feels very liberating. Yeah. But at the time, like, when I think about those two weeks, mm-hmm. you know, our 15-year-old daughter doesn't remember it. 15-year-old? Mm. She's 15. So wow. she was 12 when, when that was happening. Okay. She doesn't remember leaving Minneapolis and arriving in Turkey. Wow. Like, that's a, that's a period of time that she doesn't have memories from blocked it out or it just happened that quick which is like trump does trauma yeah, for her you know what right. i mean that's right and for me too like it's just you know so that was just one of the parts of the record that i really yeah. resonated with yeah you know that yeah. like what are our these conceptions that we have of what home is and yeah. what it means and how quickly our how quickly it can change so quick overnight in a moment you know yeah I wonder what it means for you now for me I think about relationships I think about my connections with people the things that you know the connections that can't be broken even as we all are scattered you know like I don't live I don't live in the neighborhood where I grew up anymore like I used to have the experience like you where I felt like I felt like the south end celebrates me you Mm -hmm. know I feel like my neighborhood celebrated me Mm -hmm. every time I walked outside and you're right I shouldn't like expect that like nobody should should expect that but I had grown so accustomed to it to these like reminders that 
I was doing something that mattered to people yes. every time I walked through my neighborhood. I don't have that anymore either, you know? I live in a neighborhood where when I take walks, I don't see anyone that knows me. And I'm nobody up there, you know, in, yeah. in the part of the city where I live now. Um, and it's jarring. Like I went through I went through some time where I cried about that, you know, mm. about about missing my neighborhood, you know. So yeah, I definitely relate. I definitely relate. But um yeah, I don't I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it's just about it's just about keeping good connections with people and doing the extra work mm. to keep good relationships. That's that's something that I've been committed to, I would say, in the last decade. Um, I don't know if you remember when Idol No More took off, right? When Idol No More took off, uh, I believe that was 2012, maybe late 2012. Yeah. Um, I had gone through that year was wild. I had a I had I dropped two albums in the beginning of 2012, toured, um, and just was really busy. Went to South Africa for the first time, like had a great six months, and then uh, people don't talk about this that much, but. I think there's a thing we should call like post-tour blues. We yeah. have all this activity and yes. action. And then when it slows down and you don't know what's next, like that's the time. If you don't have a thing to work on, Man. that depression hits. Yes. And that, that post-tour blues hit me really hard in yeah. 2012. Okay. And, and I remember just being like in my house, in a room watching Netflix, didn't have any desire to go outside and connect with people. Like it was, I was in a dark place, right? Mm. And I don't know more happened and I'm so thankful for it because it got me out of my house. And I remember going to a uh, teaching and this brother got up and spoke. People were just sharing about what brought them. Mm -hmm. And this guy brought, stood up and it was the most honest thing I heard. He said, I'm an introvert and I have a tendency to stay in my head. And I know that when I do that, I'm not being good to my community. Mm. So I'm making a commitment right now to not isolate myself. And when he said that, I was like, wow. Like It was like the most profound thing that like anyone could have said to me mm. in that moment. And he was just talking about his struggles. But I, I really took it to heart. And it's something I still think about all the time because I also am an introvert. A lot of artists who are really good on stage and are really good when we have a job – Yo, we spend a lot of time in our heads because making this art because we're introverts, you know? Yeah, like right. I I'm I'm not a person that likes going to parties. I don't like being around a lot of people if I don't have a job. Mm -hmm. You know? So I I also like him, I have to do extra work to not isolate myself. And I think as we get older, mm -hmm. that becomes something we have to work at cuz mm -hmm. when you're younger, people don't have families, they don't have kids, people connect more regularly. As you get right. older, people tend to like silo and as men like I think, I think people that are like you know learn how to be a person as a male in this society, like we also have to do a lot of extra work to not isolate ourselves, you know. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's a part of patriarchy that we don't talk about as much about the way it affects men, mm -hmm. you know, and our ability to to really connect and have meaningful connections with other people. So that's a long tangent but it's it's connected to this idea of home you know i think as as displaced people you know whether it's generationally displaced or whether you're you know displaced right now because of you know conditions with a city changing you know mm -hmm. uh it could be because of you know economic displacement is a real thing you know yes. with gentrification yeah. like i 
we drove to the studio right now and, you know, I had to stop the conversation because I was like, Ali, look at these blocks, like all these buildings that are just holes in the ground. This was my childhood. Yeah. Now there's no buildings here at all. These yeah. are things that I thought were going to be here forever. Right. You know, like. Man, Open Mike Eagle made know, an album about the Robert Taylor homes. Brick Body Kids. Dude. That album is like like as a conceptual album and I know you talked about this cuz I listened to your podcast but as a conceptual album though like that's one of my favorite concept oh albums God, of the last man. decade Dude. like that album is brilliant Dude. like people slept on it like you know I mean him in general yeah totally I mean, he's like such a such a a treasure you know what i mean absolutely that i'm like man there's not anybody better than this guy right you know what i mean right there's nobody better than him right so yeah uh, you know, every, everybody can be as famous as they want to be, and that's great. But, like, I'm yeah. not saying he's better than everybody, but nobody's better than him. When you tell your story, no one can be better than you at that. That's right. <laughs> you know? But he, one of the things that he said is that he was on an airplane one time, mm. and he was like, I, what did they, when they tore down the Robert Taylor homes, what did they build mm. in its place? Mm. And he went and, like, researched it and found out nothing. They just tore it down. Damn. They just tore it down. Like this place where there were multiple generations of families that had lived there. Mm. You know what I mean? They just tore it down and it's just nothing. Wow. And he was like, that was the part that hurt the most. Yeah. Like it was one thing to lose the place where all these meaning and memories and, you know, but the fact that they just didn't even care. I was like, why, why was it so necessary to tear it down then? You know what I mean? To just not put it in, like when you're saying, like that's where the, mm -hmm. that's where the fruit stand used to be. That's where the the bakery used to yeah, be. Yeah. You know what I mean? People in Seattle know exactly what we're talking about too. <laughs> and it's just like, what's there now? Oh, nothing. nothing. Yeah. It's nothing. Just, it's just flat. Yeah. It'll yeah. probably be something someday. Yeah. And I I, be, I I think about like you know, for Palestinian people, <sighs> you know, I mean, you're talking about like a project. You're talking about like projects. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That I mean, these these are families that have history in the entire region. Like there are people yeah. there. Not every, like people that are there got forced there, you know. And there were people from Gaza, but mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. there's people there from Bethlehem. That's right. There's people there from Haifa. There's people there from Jerusalem. There's people from people, like all of these cities. That, you know, people got pushed there. Nineteen got pushed there. Yeah. But then life starts to happen there mm -hmm. culture starts to happen mm -hmm. families start to happen mm -hmm. a whole lot of babies are born oh yeah you know what i mean oh yeah and like meaning is made there but i just think about like okay so if if you know like what happens after this and this is what my wife keeps asking is like what happens with all this pain with all this trauma yeah. and my wife is puerto rican and there used to be a group of people called tainos right that were like there there are the original people the indigenous people of Puerto Rico of Dominic of Española mm -hmm. of Cuba of you know mm -hmm. that that whole region mm -hmm. and like there are people like our daughters have Taino blood right but there are no Taino communities anymore right right you know what i mean yeah and you just think about like what happens and like what has happened in every place where like we did our um we did our, uh, our one of our um, anniversaries in uh, Australia one time. Mm. And it was my first time really spending time there. Mm -hmm. And we went there and it was like, what is this feeling that we have? It's so physically gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Like the, the natural stuff there is so profoundly gorgeous. Yeah. But it's like, there's a soullessness to it. Yeah. 
and the like when you really search for like what am i actually feeling mm-hmm. there's like a that soullessness is actually hiding what's right beneath that which is deep pain sadness crimes you know what i'm saying that have just been paved over stolen land stolen lives all of it yeah. you know mm-hmm. and it's like man the deep sickness that we feel in this country yeah is be, is is what's being spread around the, the world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know what i mean this like deep feeling of like to to commit genocide on people and then pretend that they never mattered or never existed in the first place mm-hmm. like when so here says uh, I, I remember when we watched the towers collapse on themselves like a broken heart. Mm. Like, man, I remember mm. when she said that. Mm-hmm. She said, then they say Palestinians don't exist. Mm. You know what I'm mm. saying? Like, those, mm. so when you said her name, like, man, those those, those joints come back. Yeah, affirm life. Yeah. But like, man, the the deep like s- detached feeling of being disconnected from soul and from meaning you know, that breeds all of these like conditions that we have in this country, mm-hmm. the uh, opioid ec- epidemics and the, mm-hmm. all of this stuff, man. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's what is actually being exported. Yeah. Like that's the part that's actually being yeah. spread throughout. And, and uh, killing the trees. I know. Like just killing it, like the olive trees. I know. Killing the fish. I know. Making it illegal to collect rainwater. Mm-hmm. Like these are the same things that have happened mm-hmm. the world over, man. I know. I know. It so another another name I didn't say uh, that's another one of my really, really big like influences in storytelling is Haile Garima. Mm. He's an Ethiopian filmmaker who mm. did Sankofa. Mm. Uh he did a film called Teza. Uh, runs a beautiful space in DC called mm. the Sankofa. Um uh, 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 it's a cafe. It's also a bookshop, video space. Anyways, um, I got to I got to host an event with him here in Seattle some years ago, and he talked about America, like exists because it continuously interrupts Black people's continuity. Mm-hmm. You know, this and th- that idea of continuity is 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 something that I think as storytellers, we really have to work to preserve you know mm. and he, he it was such a deep conversation like it's one of those sometimes you have a conversation with somebody and things like sit with you for like years you know one of the things highly said that always stuck with me is anytime people call you a pioneer or they call you the first of something that's a failure you know he said when they put that label on you it becomes your responsibility to find the people that did it before you, wow. you know, and, and, and bring that connection into the, into the present, because that's exactly what the American empire lives off of is disconnection, Yeah, you know, and, and, you know, with what you're talking about with like with Palestine, like, you know, we see that happening in real time right now. Like they're disconnecting, yeah. you know, people from each other, people from their land because they want to take it. And I feel like, storytelling absolutely is like is is one of the many fronts that wars are played out on you know and it's played out before there's even ever like a bullet fired before there's ever a bomb that's dropped yeah. like a story has to be told about a people and it has to be popularized that these people don't matter yeah that these people aren't people yeah you know what i mean so i don't know it's something i think about all the time as as musicians as storytellers like 
man, we really, we really got to do the work of like humanizing, mm-hmm. you know, each other. And, and, and if it's us, like, you know, telling our people's stories. And if it's not us, and but we know the people, like them, like Suhair, like, you know, all these amazing like Palestinian wordsmiths and storytellers, then we do the work to amplify their stories because I don't, I don't know what else to do. It's, yeah, it's overwhelming. It's, you know, it's heartbreaking. It's keeps me up at night, you know, every night. We talk about therapy every single week on this show, and we were doing so even before we had this partnership with BetterHelp. But all of us have stuff going on inside of us that we need to sit with, we need to talk through, we need to deal with. And it's not only people that have had these like extreme traumatic events. We tend to think like, oh, well, I didn't watch my parents get murdered in front of me, so that means I don't need therapy. Or maybe I don't, uh, I'm not aware of ever being you know, a survivor of sexual violence. So that means I don't need therapy. The reality is that all of us live with this sense of uh, what life should be like and how people should treat each other. And from a very early age, that sense of safety and love and community and security and acceptance is punctured and it's ruptured and it's damaged. And our sense of self Uh, goes through a lot of different things. Our understanding of the world, our understanding of ourselves, we have things that we need to talk through that we deserve to talk through. And for me, I've always known that and I've had different interactions with therapy. But a couple of years ago, my family and I moved to Istanbul, Turkey, and people here don't speak English. Uh, It's hard for me to, it's almost not necessarily legal and like fully licensed for me to talk to therapists in America. Like they would be violating their licenses, most of them, to talk to me knowing that I'm not in their state or in the areas where they're licensed. And so I heard about BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. And when you use our code, betterhelp.com slash travelers, you get a discount. And so I was listening to a podcast that I love and I heard them talking about BetterHelp. So I was like, man, let me try this out. You go to their site, betterhelp.com slash travelers, and you're gonna get a discount on your first month. And we also get a commission uh, to help the work that we do here. You go there, you tell them like, what is it? Tell me about yourself. How old are you? Where do you live? Where are you from? Uh, Is there anything that we need to know about you that would help in your therapy journey? And then what do you want to talk to a therapist about? It can be addiction. It can be relationship stuff. It can be trauma. It can be abuse. It can be anger. It can be, I mean, you name it. A human being is a complicated thing. Human beings are mysterious things with a lot of stuff going on inside of us. So you start with that. And then you say like, well, what kind of therapist do you want to talk about? Is there a certain approach to therapy that you've heard about that you might like? Uh, Have you ever talked to a therapist before? Have you ever been given a diagnosis before? Are you on any kind of medication? Uh, And then how do you want to talk? So you choose a therapist and then you have access to their calendar. You book your own appointment without ever having to talk to anybody. And then you can start communicating with them right away. And once you start talking, if it's 
a match made in heaven, then dope. If it's not, after a few sessions, you know, I've had people that I was talking to that I was like, man, this person is really wise. They're great. They're trained. They're licensed. If they had a podcast, I'd listen to it, but they're not listening to me the way that they're not tailoring this to me. And I'm here to be served. Like I'm paying my money. I'm taking my time out. I'm here for Ali's therapy, not just to hear your program. So I switched and it's like no hard feelings, no questions asked. These people are professionals. It's no extra charge. And I started that same week with a new therapist and it was somebody that I felt like was a little better. So I've been through a couple of therapists on BetterHelp and it's a beautiful thing. So go to, go to betterhelp.com slash travelers. Like I said, you get a discount, we get a commission. You're supporting the work here. You're supporting you living your best life and being your best self. And you're also part of this community and we're very grateful to be in partnership with betterhelp.com. We've been rocking from day one on the Travelers Podcast with Zakat Foundation. Z-A-K-A-T is the pillar in Islam uh, where Muslims give back and share what we've been blessed to have. And Zakat Foundation isn't a Muslim-led organization, but they don't only help Muslims and they don't use their work to proselytize. And so often when these things come up in the world, these big calamities, whether it's the earthquake in Syria and Turkey, whether it's the, the situation that popped off in Ukraine, uh, and now this absolute nightmare that's happening in Gaza and Palestine and Palestine over and over and over again. You know, before being so connected with the uh, Zakat Foundation, I remember like when stuff happened, a tsunami or a flood or an earthquake, I would be scrambling to try to figure out like, what can I do? Um, you know, do I even have a little bit of money that I can share with these people that I'm just seeing this footage of them suffering? But how do I know which organization to give to? Who can you trust? How do you know that the aid is actually going to reach the people? I haven't had extensive relationships with any of these orgs, but the one that I've worked with the closest is the Zakat Foundation. And I know what their philosophy is. I know what their intention is. I know the way that they seek to work with people on the ground and let them be in the driver's seat. And a lot of these places, they're already on the ground. And so, you know, Zakat Foundation was already doing tremendous humanitarian work in Palestine. And so for them to be mobilized in this moment is a lot harder, though, because the, it's blocked. Like the humanitarian aid is intentionally being blocked. The people's water has been blocked. Their food has been blocked. Their gas has been blocked. Their electricity has been cut. Um, I mean, it's it's all of the basic essentials of life. There have been times where, you know, their their telecommunications and their Wi-Fi have gone out. You know, it's really, very difficult to get aid in there right now. But Zakat Foundation is working day and night trying to get whatever they can, you know, into Gaza and into the country to be able to just serve the basic needs of people. And they have incredible work that they do all over the world. They got a orphan program. They've got meals programs. And they, like I said, they don't only help Muslims and they don't use that work to to proselytize. That's just not the the idea. And so the Ukraine, for example, is a place that doesn't have a good history with Muslims. But when the Ukrainians were suffering, the Zakat Foundation stood up and said, we don't care what our political relationship with these people has been. They're being oppressed and they need humanitarian aid. These are human beings that need clothing and shelter and water and food and uh, first aid. And so they sent that there. 
So that's the type of organization they are, and we're very grateful to be working with them. Go to Zakat US on social media. You can follow their work. If you go to Zakat, to Z-A-K-A-T dot org, you can tap in and find a project on there that makes sense to you. And just put something on it and know that for as much as people are working on trying to get this aid to the people that need it the most, Zakat Foundation is right there on the front lines. We're grateful to be rocking with them. I love on the album when you're saying, you know, talking about your elders, yeah, like our elders and like what they experienced and what they lived through. Cycles. And just like, how yeah. did you survive this? Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because like those are all also, those are also prescriptions and roadmaps for yeah. resistance and resilience. And sometimes we forget, you know, and sometimes I forget. Like sometimes I'll be so deep in my pain, thinking about displacement, thinking about like, you know, what's happening in Tigray, thinking about what's happening with gentrification, that I forget that my mom left on the eve of a war, mm -hmm. literally, and didn't know if her siblings were gonna make it out. Mm -hmm. You know, like these these things did happen in cycles and there is like there is like real information to be gained from our elders, you know? Mm -hmm. And how the trauma of that displacement is something that lives in my body, you know, it's through my whole life, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, it's really deep. It's really deep. We got we got a lot of work to do. I'm chuckling because that's a chorus from an earlier song that I wrote back in the day. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's ill because, like, you know, we talk about, like, the idea of being educated. Mm -hmm. Like, really the best thing that a person can do in terms of really, truly education of the soul, the spirit, the body, the mind, yeah. the intellect, the imagination is sitting and being connected with elders. That's it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And just like how the idea is like, okay, well, now we're going to take you out of your house and bus you to this building so that you can become educated. You know, but... It's also a place where disconnection happens, you know, where, where where they say education looks like this and education must like fit inside this box and your mm -hmm. teachers must look like this and they can't look like you and you have to learn in this language or you're not educated or you have to speak it properly or you're not educated or, you, or you're not smart, you know, like all, all those things. That's like, those are all examples of like disconnection, you know, from, from your truth, you know, yeah. you know, and the truth of your people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. And it's amazing. Like, I love the way that you focus on also if the if the hurt connects us all, mm -hmm. then the healing also connects us all. Yeah. Yeah. Like the universality of the weapons that are used against people, you know, but that the, the healing is also a group like it's a it's a it's a group communal global. Yeah push for healing that was that was something i i got to actually while i was working on the album before this um so it was five years ago now um 2018 i did an album called history rhymes if it doesn't repeat mm. a south end healing ritual the whole i just love long titles i don't know what's wrong with me but <laughs> i did most of that album in this studio and um i'm only alone on one song i was processing a very specific trauma in my life mm. and um and I had just read this book called The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah, oh yeah. You know? That's a big deal in my wife's world. Yeah. The Body the, Keeps Score. Oh, that book, that book, like it it really, it really helped me out, you know, in so many ways. And one of the things I got from it was that healing 
is not something you do in isolation. Like healing is a collective mm -hmm. journey, you know? So I was so thankful to to worker Sam for providing the space of this studio that we're in, Mead Street, you know? Um, I did this one song where I delved into this trauma that I had been working through and living with for some years. And once I was able to write that song honestly, and it's one of those songs where like, I wrote probably eight or nine different versions of it before I actually like got to it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, everything from there was like, like I wasn't alone on any other song on that album. Mm. And yeah, that album was a trip. Like every single person on the record, like I played that song for them first and we had a conversation about it and then and then we went in. So I do feel like this album is kind of a continuation of that. Yeah. It's just like more traumas <laughs> happened since the, 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 that affected so many of us and yeah. Yeah, with 2020, with the pandemic, with all these different wars, with displacement, with gentrification, with police brutality, like we all went through, like I can't think of another time in our lived experience where so many of us went through the same trauma together. Yes. Yeah. It's really deep. Globally. Globally. Yeah, Amir Suleiman said, yeah. during World Wars One and Two, there were people that mm -hmm. didn't even know they were happening. There were people in parts of the world that were just yeah. like, oh yeah, apparently somewhere there's people fighting a war and there's all these, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people dying. Yeah. The pandemic was a truly universal. Yeah. This is different. And you don't and you don't just snap and go back to normal after that. I don't I don't think you do, you know? You you carry that. What if like I mean, your wife probably said this to you a billion times, but like, you know, trauma lives in your body, mm -hmm. you know? And if and, and and if you don't do something with that trauma and that grief, grief lives in your body too. Yeah. Like if you don't do something with it, it, it can turn really toxic, you know? Like I think that's where like a lot of abuse comes from is from trauma that's unhealed and in, in, in people acting on it in different ways, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's interesting how, what an aversion we can have. Mm -hmm to healing around other people yeah, because it's so profoundly vulnerable mm -hmm. because like, I'm going to have reactions to things that I'm not in control of. Yeah. And you're learning about them at the same moment I'm learning I'm about, about them. About them. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like when I, when I have, when I have a traumatic response to something, you're actually witnessing it better than I am. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, you're going to know me better than I know myself in certain ways mm -hmm. to heal around other people. Mm -hmm. And the way that people, the way that our bodies respond to each other and things like that in those moments, like we're so, we're so guarded and protected against that. Mm -hmm. But that's also like the medicine of community, of yeah. family, Yeah. you know? Yeah. It's like the, the thing that, the thing that, heals us the most is what we're so trained to resist against mm -hmm. to like get yourself you know get get your own little isolated space and go hide in it mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what it is mm -hmm. if it's a tent on the on the on a, the side of the road under uh, then go in your space and hide in your space so that you can have some sort of yeah. separation from everybody else and it's so it's just so not the way it works yeah. you know it's one of the it, really dope things though about about visiting a lot of places in Africa yeah. is like seeing how people live in mm -hmm. extended families yeah. and those extended families are part of neighborhoods and villages and if there if if I had like a you know 
like one thing that I wanted everyone to get from my work is just build community any mm -hmm. way and every way you can, you know, whatever that means to you, you know, because, yeah, I really feel like this society just pushes us to try to go at everything alone. And it's so unhealthy. And that's how we lose people, you know, I think is in isolation, you know. I feel like a lot of the language around, you know, like there's therapy and then there's like the social media language around therapy mm -hmm. where people like pick up these terms and throw them around. Oh, sure. So-and-so's a narcissist or we have a trauma bond. And like, we, uh, it's like, yeah, those are real things. I don't know yeah. if that's necessarily the way you're using them. Yeah. But there's this, it's very popular now to make it seem like the most healing thing you can do is to cut people off. And I just feel like, man, that's not, I've asked in, in, places where people have like more natural communities what do you do with somebody who's a problem mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the answer is never we cut them off yeah there's no unfriending or untribing or un it feels like that's prison culture you know mm -hmm. what i mean that's like that's what this country does like it just casts people away throws them away like they're nothing you know that's that's prison culture <laughs> yeah yeah and I'm not saying that, like, if someone harmed you, you should keep them in your life. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that, but I think there's this tendency. I've seen it a lot where, you know, someone caused harm. So the person who was harmed or even the person that just, like, was offended by that har that harm existing, right. you know, yeah. says that that person should not have anyone that cares about them. Right. Yeah. You know, that's different. And that's Man. and that's the thing that I see happen. You mess with Adrienne Marie Brown? I love Adrienne Marie Dude, Brown. Dude, yeah. what the hell? She edited Man. one of my stories, by the way. She, Word? Yeah. Like, I'm, oh, I'm in a, a Octavius Brew, the book, okay. science fiction stories from social justice movements. Like, I'm in that book. Like, she, she was my editor, you know? Dope, dope, yeah. dope. So, yeah. Yo, she, you talking about people who are mm -hmm. so precise with the way oh, that yeah. they're able to word things. Oh, yeah. Man, incredible. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Brendan was just, I just, I don't know why, like in the algorithm, her stuff wasn't showing up on my feed. Oh, yeah. And so Brendan started sending it to me to make sure I wasn't missing okay. it. But like the things that she's been saying about yeah. uh, Palestine and like, man, Adrian is so ill. Yeah. But that, we will not cancel us, man. Yeah, I haven't, you know, I haven't read it. I need, I need to, I shame Brendan to had, it. Brendan read yeah. it to me. Oh, wow. Because it's not an audio book format mm -hmm. and I can't like, mm -hmm. like physically read a book. That's dope. So Brendan read it to me on voice notes That's over so the course of like so a week that he did that. <laughs> yeah man brenda's a real one for that oh man yeah, yeah he's the realest ever but man and the the fact that she said that when she said it at this specific moment that she wrote that mm -hmm. and she started by saying i wrote an essay just again like man people always sitting with self and always you know contemplating okay but what are my intentions and what what's my impact and what are my blind spots and where are areas that I have still need to heal and become whole and things mm -hmm. but so she wrote an article and she said she wrote or, or maybe like an essay or something yeah. like a blog post or something about the idea of canceling mm -hmm. and that she got response from people and pushback from people mm -hmm. saying you haven't thought about this and you haven't thought about this and, and she said I really listened to those responses of the people that didn't like what I wrote yeah and she's like so here I am now this is the book that mm -hmm. came from me mm -hmm. diving deeper oh, into those conversations and mm -hmm. thinking about the things that I had you know maybe not considered and things and man that thing is uh, it's a masterpiece I think man that's dope. I need to go back and read it. She's so prolific. Like, she got, like, multiple books out. Like, I need to catch up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, you know, the, the yeah. 
I feel you. There, there is something very different with the idea that like relationships, mm-hmm. sometimes what's needed is some space. Yeah. Yeah. And that's different than throwing somebody away, mm-hmm. you know, having, having space and being real. And it's also like different claiming your space from somebody that maybe harms you. Maybe some, maybe somebody caused some harm and that harm triggers you so much that you can't be in, in a space with them. Right. But that doesn't mean other people, you know? Yeah. And that's, and that's something that, you know, in the abolitionist like community that, you know, it's hard. Like, 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 you know, trying to live with abolitionist ethics mm-hmm. is a very hard thing to do in practice. Like nobody's like, mastered this thing of like what a world looks like when people aren't so carceral and don't just throw people away all the time like it gets it gets really messy because we all have really deep perpetrators of harm in all of our communities and what do we do with them right they still need people to love them and to care about them and to check on them and to you know and to hold them accountable and that does not need to be the person that was harmed and it and I, I learned this from two brothers who um, who just got out. They were incarcerated. And uh, there's this amazing organization here in Seattle called API Chaya mm. that works with uh, survivors of uh, domestic violence, you know, intimate partner abuse. And they do a lot of work with people that are incarcerated as well, you mm. know, who, who want to heal the harm that they've been involved with and have caused because the prison system does nothing to heal people, you know, but there are people that are incarcerated that actually want to heal. Of so course. where do they go? Yeah. You know what I mean? And there's different projects around the country that like Richie Reseda is another one in LA who was doing like men's book clubs around bell hooks to break down patriarchy inside of prison. API Chai has, has a similar group. And I met these two brothers and they said like, you know, if you're, if you're in that situation, like where, you want to be in community with someone who's perpetrated harm and you want to help hold them accountable, you actually can't judge them while you're holding them accountable, you know? And that was something that was like, wow, because I was was in a situation where I had like a lot of deep resentment towards somebody. Mm -hmm. I was... uh, uh, I was asked to facilitate a situation, uh, you know, and and I had deep resentment towards the person who caused this harm. But people in my community were asking me to hold them accountable. And I learned that I just wasn't the person that could do it. Right. Because I wasn't going to any conversation without judging the person. Yeah. And that's not how a real authentic, you know, conversation can happen. So... I don't know. I, just, I say that to say, I don't even know how we got on this subject. I know we were talking about home, but all this happens in homes, right? Yeah. Like all of this is a part yeah. of home, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, it takes, it takes, it takes a big network of people. I think, I think it takes, and, and no one person can be everything for everyone. You know what I mean? But how do you show up in the relationships that you are in, you know? And yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just know we need each other. Mm-hmm. I know we all need each other, you know? One of the things that, like, indigenous, natural mm-hmm. human beings that live in communities do mm-hmm. is, like, absorb all this ugliness and give back beauty. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things I just see over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have a teacher in, in the Gambia in West Africa, mm-hmm. and he's a very simple person, and he's always just like, why do all these people always think I'm a teacher? And it's mm-hmm. like, you know... We see him as this like spiritual master. Right. And all these people asked all these different questions. And he was just like, 
let's just hear all the questions first. <laughs> and so I was like, Sheikh Mohammed, what do we do about this problem? And what do we do about that problem? And what do we do about this? And what do we do about? And he was like, oh, wow. He said, the answer for all your questions, all these different questions is just one answer. You have to forgive everybody. Wow. And I mean, it was just all of this like really heavy stuff. Mm -hmm. You have to forgive everybody. And you have to love everybody. And you have to serve everybody. And he said, um, he said, be like an apple tree. He's mm -hmm. like, if you throw rock at an apple tree, it throws you apples back. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, people might hear phrases like that and they're like, oh, whatever. That's a cliche and it's corny and whatever. Back to the whole corny thing. Mm -hmm. It's corny until you try to really do it, until you try to be about that. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and it's just one of the things that, I, that we see over and over and over again with people who have been given the worst of what the human condition has to offer and give back beauty. Mm -hmm. And in your album, I don't hear any bitterness. Mm -hmm. I don't hear any, I don't even hear anger. Damn. I don't hear any resentment. I don't hear any hatred for anybody. That's tight. I hear nothing but like, these are the lessons. Mm -hmm. This is the healing. These are the solutions we're seeking. Wow. This is what we've, I hear pain. Yeah, I'm like, there's there's hurt. No, on there's this a album. lot of pain. <laughs> there's hurt. No, it's pain yeah. shot all up and through <laughs> everything. But there's a difference between pain yeah, yeah. and yeah. bitterness. Yeah. There's no there's I a lot of pain, but it's like mean. sweet. Yeah. It's sweet pain. It's healing. Uh, Resma talks about mm. uh clean pain and dirty pain. Interesting. Okay. So Resma says that like when we avoid our pain, right. we start getting the dirty pain. Which that. is like, that's when we start abusing people. Right. That's when we start having addictions. That's when we start, right. that's dirty pain. Right. Clean pain is to like really sit and be with our pain and be with what we're really experiencing. And mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And he also says like, there are, there are times to like expose ourselves to it. And then we can, we can take a, a break from it. Mm -hmm. Like rest is part of work. You know what yeah. I mean? But I, there's, n I don't hear any bitterness in any of in anything on that that record i'm glad i'm glad there's one situation in particular where i still have feelings about it you know what i mean i don't know if i'm i don't think i'm bitter but yeah the the some family joint you know mm. yeah that one that one doesn't feel finished it doesn't feel healed yet <laughs> you know mm. yeah i'm still i'm still in that one a little bit yeah yeah <laughs> it's beautiful to hear you say that yeah. I was playing, so uh, Dr. Rami Neshashibi is somebody you should know. Okay. He's the one that actually, um, he's the one that actually connected us with uh, the Tigray people in Ethiopia mm -hmm. while that was happening. Oh, wow. And um, he's a Palestinian brother who grew up on the south side of Chicago. Mm. And he runs an organization called Iman, Inner City Muslim Action Network. I've heard, I've heard of this work, yeah. Man, he's an amazing person. Oh. He And, and, um, you know, so he's Palestinian, grew up in a black community mm -hmm. and does really incredible work. He actually was leading a the first annual, inshallah, black Palestinian tour mm. while that was happening, where he took all of these like mm. interfaith 
people from the black American community to visit the black people in Palestine. Oh, was this um was this with like with Dream Hampton and like I don't think Dream was on it. Jasiri X and No, this this they were there in this past October. Oh like there was when a... it, when everything popped off, they oh, were wow. there. there and me another... and my wife were supposed oh. to be there. Oh wow. Okay. No, I, I think I, I think I know about the one you're talking about. There was this one this, there was one like seven years ago or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's Jasiri and Dream and them were. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought about Dream when you mentioned um uh, the satisfaction. Oh yeah, she did that video for them. It was so dope. Absolutely, man. Love to Dream Hampton. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. I really want to talk to her about um, about surviving R. Kelly. Because that's such a like, you know, she's somebody that like, that's an approach. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That like, man, I. I and the the response that she got for that is, yeah, you know, she had to leave her house, man. Yeah, yeah, it was deep. It was deep. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I knew, I knew, um, I had close proximity to a community leader mm-hmm. that we found out was harming people. Right. And this was an extremely charismatic person that everybody had so much fun around and all this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and. It's really difficult to be the person saying, "Yeah, but mm-hmm. what about the people that have been hurt?" Yeah, and it's this no, it's the same thing with Palestine. What about the Palestinians? Exactly. That's the whole question. That's the whole fucking point. Yeah. What about the Palestinians? Yeah. Like, yes, Jewish people, you deserve to. You've had your experiences. Yeah. You deserve to be free. You deserve to be. Yeah. You do deserve to have your thing. The Just, Palestin- but, but what about the Palestinians? Yeah. Like, yeah, Europeans fleeing, whatever mm-hmm. craziness happened to you. Resma always says, mm-hmm. why do they say I'm going to go medieval on you? He said, Resma says, everything white bodies did to non-white bodies here was done to them by other white bodies in Europe. That's where they learned it. It's so deep, too, because um, you see how hard uh, the, the Irish, like, oh, people are man. going for Palestine. Oh, dude. Because they see themselves in it. Yes. They're, like, they're like, we survived something like this, too. Yes, they did. You know? Yes, they did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and they had people that were like, okay, we're just gonna go blow stuff up. Mm-hmm. Nobody hears us. Nobody when we protest, nobody hears us. Yeah. When we uh, when we work together, when we do coalitions, when we negotiate, when we try to tell, 70, when we try to talk. Seventy five years. You don't think Palestinian people have tried everything? They've tried everything under the sun. <laughs> They've tried everything, and they live in an apartheid state, and people don't respect their voices. So yes, there are going to be some people. There's going to be a Nat there's, Turner. That's like you know what? Some, there's going to be some violence when you inflict. This when you subject people to daily violence, seventy five live in apartheid state. You yeah. you are in here. Yes, you can't get out. Like there's gonna be violence, and the, and the people that accuse other people of violence are the most violent people in the in the history of human mm-hmm. beings. Mm-hmm. Like there's been more like since this idea of whiteness, there's been more yeah. mass murder. Yeah, of, like entire like than there has been in the entire human history before it. Mm-hmm. Like who invented all these nuclear weapons? Who, yeah. you know, who, who focused the majority of scientific and mm-hmm. technological advance into killing other people in such broad scale? Like nobody else did that. I know. And so there's just the whole question. Okay, what about the what about the First Nations people? Right. Okay, what about the children of enslaved Africans? That's right. Okay, what about the poor? Okay, but what you build this whole beautiful thing? Okay, but what about the people who can't walk up those steps? Right. And nobody likes when you say that. Right. Like you are hated for saying, but what about so and so? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
brother, this like this time period, like this is one of the time periods where I feel like nothing's the same after this. You know what I mean? Like I keep saying, like this this is a profoundly impactful yeah. thing on our entire generation, and I'm gonna remember mm-hmm. who spoke up. Yes. Like my heart has just grown for the people that have used their voices and their platforms at personal cost. And I'm going to remember yeah. the people that didn't. Like I already loved Amanda Seals. Like Yo. that's, I've known her for a long time. That's my, that's my buddy. She goes so hard. And it's my so love for Amanda Seals. Dude, through the roof. 100%. Yeah. Through the roof. Because it makes me feel like these are people that will fight for me. Yes. Like if I was in the middle of this. Yes. These are the people that will fight for me. Yeah. They're showing who they are, you know? She's shining. Saul is shining. Saul Williams. I mean, Mark Lamont Hill's been talking about this. Like, he already lost. He lost you know, a job. He, he lost a job. Still, and still, that book, I need to read that book, too. He co-wrote a book called Except for Palestine. Yeah. The title. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's basically the message of your of your song. Yeah. 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 So the, I don't know if we, if we ever, like, of course, we never sample anything, but the mm-hmm. inspiration uh, for that song came from <laughs> Mulatu, right? Is that a Mulatu sample? I, th- I mean, it's an Ethiopian sample. Uh, man, forgive me, brother. I, I don't. I, th- I, I think it is. It might be a Mulatu sample. Yeah. Shout that, out to Mulatu. I know him. Okay. Yeah. You said the first time you performed, he was in the front row. Crazy. Oh, did I say that on this album? Yeah. I did, huh? Yeah. Yeah. No, I can tell that story. Um, so it's kind of deep. So I got to go to Ethiopia for the first time in my life when I was 30 years old, I'm 42 now. So this is like 2011. Um, and I got to go through music and I had this big fear of going to Ethiopia for the first time, being from America, not being fluent in Amarinya. You know, I don't speak the language fluently. Um, I'm mixed. I had this big feeling that the entire country was gonna be like how certain elders were in Seattle where they see me as fringe. They see me as the outsider, the the white person, the, you know? And I had like this big fear of like, I don't wanna go to a whole country that treats me like these few elders did, you know? My cousin uh, who's on the album, McLeet, McLeet Hedero, mm-hmm. another phenomenal artist. She's got like five albums out based in San Francisco. Um, if you haven't checked out McLeet's music, check her out. Okay. That's my real cousin. Um, McLeet uh, brought me my guy Elias Fulmore, who goes by Burnt Face, Cade, and her band, and we got to tour in Ethiopia. And I spent about a month out there. The first two weeks of that month, we were touring. So we got to do, I I think it was something like 16 shows in 14 days. Mm. Like there were some days where we were performed like in an orphanage and at like some swanky place and at a nightclub, like all in one day. And um, yeah, the first night that we got to Ethiopia, um, Mulatu Astake was in the front row, the, the father of Ethio Jazz. Great. I mean, for people yeah. that don't uh, that aren't aware, I mean, that's like James Brown is just chilling. That's like Quincy Jones is yeah. chilling at your yeah. is chilling at your concert. And the other one I don't talk about as much is funny, but the you know the Ethiopics series mm-hmm. that a lot of people like learned about Ethiopian music from. Mm-hmm. The record label owner, Francis Falsetto, like I think that's his name. He was also at that show. Amazing. But what was funny was the their different responses to what we were doing. Uh-huh. Mulatu was in the front row showing love. Wow. And like he drove, he was driving around Addis himself. And he drove to where we were staying and had coffee with us every morning for like days on end. Oh my goodness, man. And 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 people asked Francis what what he thought of us. And he was like, I don't like it. I only like traditional music. 
he's 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 a European American person who made like all this money off selling Ethiopian music. But Mulatu was like, don't do what I did. Keep pushing the boundaries. Keep mm. keep pushing the genre. He was just like so 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 supportive, you know. And I asked him a question about sampling too. He said, um, <laughs> "What did he say?" He's got such a funny voice too. He talks like he talks like real quietly like this mm. until he gets excited. And then he talks like this. Mm. <laughs> and then he gets back quiet again. He said, uh, "He said every time somebody samples him, it's like one up for Ethiopia." He said, "It's okay to sample what I did before, but don't sample what I'm doing now." <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Wow. Yeah. Man, they flipped. They flipped it on that. That first, like the main single from the distant relatives. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He was talking about that while we were there too. Uh, yeah, wasn't Damian Marley. He was like, you know, Nas and these Marley kids. They sample my music. <laughs> he said, these Marley kids. Subhanallah, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing, man. Yeah, yeah, that was a mulatto sample for sure. Yeah, that. Uh, Shout out to Kanon who worked on that record as well. Kanon. Yeah, Kanon. I believe that track, several songs on Distant Relatives were, the way I heard it, were originally written for a record that Kanon and Damian Marley were doing together. Uh-huh. And Kanon's featured on that album on multiple joints. Okay. But yeah, he had a, he had a lot to do with that record. Kanon samples a lot of Ethiopian artists in his music as well. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Man, Kanon. It's, it's interesting. Like, I've never met Kanon. Oh, really? Yeah. That's wild. It's another person that I feel like I know, yeah. but I've just, like, we've never met. Yeah, we got to do a couple of shows here. One of my favorite shows that I've done in Seattle was opening for Kanon at on the Troubadour tour when Troubadour mm-hmm. first came out. Mm-hmm. I had never seen that many East Africans in the audience in my life. And it was beautiful because like we you know, Seattle, Somali, Ethiopian Eritreans, everybody was together. Yeah. And you got an Ethiopian and a Somali rapper together on stage. Like McCleet was there as well. I brought her as a guest. Mm. It was just beautiful, man. It was so beautiful. We could have sold out multiple nights, you know, but we we only had one. Where'd you guys play? Numos. Crazy. Yeah, Numos. Just I packed. Love that place, man. Yeah. Um, it's ill too. So on the Ethiopian hip hop thing, like I mentioned Elias who went to Ethiopia with us. Mm. He was the first other Ethiopian rapper I met in my life. Mm. He found me online like in two thousand and five. Mm. So I start in the mid nineties and I don't meet another Ethiopian rapper until 2005 mm. and then through Elias I start meeting different ones around the country and then the next one I hear and really get into who's just an East African hip-hop artist is Kanon okay you know what I mean but there was so few of us in that in that time period yeah man you know and we and ever, we met each other like you know yeah. did you ever connect with Nip I never got to meet Nip see man Nah, I wish, I wish. And I always wondered too, I was like, I wonder if Nip knew about us. Like, cause he was, you know. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I would almost, like, you have to. Yeah. I know he came out here and he connected with John. Uh, he did yeah. He did some interviews with John Moore when, uh, rest in peace, man, when he was on cue. But yeah, I never, I never got to meet Nipsey, man. And Jake did, some, Jake worked with him. That's right. Jake worked with Nip as well, man. Man, Seattle, I can't get used to being here without John. I know. I like I just uh, like I I kind of it just uh, it just like he was this city to me. Yeah, I met him the first time I came here. I was with him every time I ever came. Yeah, I mean John John for me was like and Erica Erica White as well. Mm. You know uh, Upendu's mother Kylia from Beyond Reality. Mm. When they were together in the late '90s, like they they were the first to really give my generation a space to do all ages hip hop shows 
we had nothing. Like when I remember, you know, starting out with music, we had spoken word, like open mic kind of nights. Mm -hmm. And this one night called Short Shot Sundays, every single Sunday, John and Erica hosted this space. It was at a venue called The Sit and Spin, which is across the street from their apartment on 3rd and Bell. And I went to that thing religiously. I remember I started like, they taught me so much without telling me they were teaching me, mm -hmm. you know, because they saw how committed I was that mm. they started asking me like, why don't you come early and help us carry these turntables? Or, or Erica would like drive to where I was during the week to make sure I have flyers or to, you know, like they just kind of took me under their wing and taught me so much, man. Like I will, I will forever be indebted to, to John and Erica for, for everything they put into me and to, into our generation, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, man. John had lived an amazing life. Yeah. He he had his hands in so many different things and really I think had a great understanding but of how to how to merge all of the different things that people were doing. Mm -hmm. He saw he saw what people were doing business wise and yeah. in art and culture and you know, even within the different genres and forms of art that like this is all part of the same movement. Mm-hmm. And he was really good at being able to to bridge gaps and to reach out to people. He also argued with everybody, like anybody yeah. that was close with oh, John. Yeah. Like you would go through a period where you weren't talking and then you'd get back cool again. I did. But, but for me, <laughs> for me, it wasn't even me. Me and John never had a fight. I, I it's so funny. I'm ashamed of it now, but I think I think it's OK to talk about because it's just one of those things growing up. But I was mad at him when he stopped rapping. Mm. And I held a grudge against him because he wasn't rapping anymore. And I don't even know why. I was young, you know, source of labor to me was like, you know, that was that was his group when he was rapping. Yeah. And they had just released their album with Subverse. And, you know, mm -hmm. they were like, I wanted to be like them. You know, like like to me, like my idea of success when I was younger was to get to where source of labor is. Right. And when he stopped, I felt like, I think looking back at it, I was like, oh, does this mean I'm not going to have a shot now? I'm not going to have a chance. Like, I'm going to get to a spot and I have to stop too. Like, I yeah. think those things were in my head without me even being able to put voice to it. And I remember just being mad at him that he he stopped making music. And it took me some years to realize that was dumb. But I and get look, it, and look And look at the impact that he's had since with mentoring and managing, like you name it coming from Seattle, Washington. Like he opened up so, like arguably like way more doors for people once he hung up the mic yeah. than he, when he was on the mic. And that ended up like having such a big impact on me. And I remember like in the, in the days of Twitter before it got all like, you know, red haired and toxic. Um, <laughs> um, he said very simply, he was like, what he said, he said, invest, Invest in your life outside of hip hop and watch your life inside of hip hop improve. Mm. And when he said that, it was like, because I saw them, I saw him do that in his life. And I took those words to heart. And I was like, all right, bet. Let me, let me see what else I can do instead of just being a rapper. Let me see how I can, you know, invest in younger artists. Let me see how I can work behind the scenes. Let me see how I can help lift culture and lift all of our people up mm -hmm. from behind, whether people acknowledge it or not, you know? And that's, and that's also something I learned from John. You know yeah. what I mean? Like he's, yeah, amazing, man. Amazing. What a loss. Thank you for, for making uh, Own Light. 
Like, thank you for doing that video and dedicating it to him. Like, when I think of the time when John passed, like, your your video is forever a part of my memory of that time, mm. you know? So It's weird, man. Like, when we were working, you know how, like, when you're working on a video, mm -hmm. there's a lot of, like, anytime you're working on art, you're, like, focused on these little finite details and everything. Mm -hmm. And I was I was not seeing things the same way as the guy that was directing it at okay. the time. Okay. And so, you know, we were just having that kind of back and forth or whatever. And then I remember when I was like, all right, let me just watch this whole, let me zoom out and watch the whole thing. And I had forgotten, mm. like I knew the whole time, I was like, we're gonna shoot this in Washington, it's gonna be dedicated to John, because what this song is about is really connected to, you know, to what he was saying, that mm -hmm. the spiritual, the community work, the political work, the business work, like the activists, the business people, the entrepreneurs, the artists of all genres, yeah. the teachers, the like we are all part of the same community and movement and we need each other. And like, the, you know, the way that he really like embodied that, mm -hmm. that I was like, man, this is what this is. But the first time that I ever sat there and watched it all the way to the end, yeah. like I knew it was coming. And it was weird because the first time it came, like I didn't want it to come up on the screen. Mm -hmm. Almost like when I watched the Malcolm X movie. Yeah. I'm always like, maybe if I don't watch the rest of the movie, they won't kill him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know what I mean? But I was like, man, and when that, when that, when that part hit, it's like, man. And, and his sister dancing through the she, video, yeah. Jen Moore dancing is like, that part is really deep to me too. Yeah. I was with Jen at all these nights that I'm talking about at Sure Shot. Like we're very close to the same age, so. Like a lot of my memories of John, like she's in those memories too, you know? And then also the Imam from the African American Muslim community from Seattle, uh, Imam Benjamin Shabazz, he's in that video too. Mm -hmm. And he's since passed away. Oh, wow. That also was another part of my life in Seattle that's also not. Right. So, like that community, the times that I would be here, and I'd stayed here for a summer one time. Right. And, um, made a lot of music here, I know. Yeah, I used to go to the Yesler Center every Friday. That's wow. where they held their meetings. I used to live in Yesler Terrace. That's ill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like the elders there, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? There was a brother named Earl that was like a big dude. He was in the Panthers back in the day. And mm. when the Nation of Islam first came to Seattle, it was in his home. Oh, and they actually, so at that time, the Nation of Islam used to have this big red flag that looks like the Turkish flag, uh -huh. but it says FJ. Uh, freedom, justice, equality, Islam. So F-J-E-I. And then they had this big thing that was like, who will win the Battle of Armageddon and all this stuff. Yeah. That was painted in the basement of the home that he lived in during that time. Mm. And he told me that they sold that home to a Jewish family who left that in the basement just mm. because they were like, this is history. Mm. So they didn't paint over it. Mm. You know what I mean? That's beautiful. But yeah, Brother Earl since then passed away. Damn. Um, like yeah, several of the several of the elders, man. You lost so many. Yeah, and so those were kind of like mm -hmm. brother Imam Benjamin was another one. I mean, he came to all our shows. Wow. Um, you know, he was in that he was in that video. He was a big James Brown fan, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so he used to always tell me like, yeah, there's this moment where James Brown did this, and it reminded me of what you do. You know. Oh, that's ill. <laughs> so yeah, so like you, you you know, when somebody like Dave from De La or like mm -hmm. I was just think about the fact that like man Bismarcky yeah died. Yeah. And there's nobody to replace them. No. 
No. Like there's not another Dave. There's not another John Moore. There's not another Biz Marquee. Irreplaceable. There's not another. Not another gift to Gab. Oh know? man, Gab. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. I think about him in this record too, because his voice is on the record. And yeah. The vitamin beat reminds me of Gab too. Yeah. Yeah, Zombie. Zombie. Yeah. Idea, you know. <sighs> Idea was the one that made sure that everyone that was connected with Rhyme Sayers knew about Freestyle Fellowship I love it. and knew about, I mean, he was really on some like, these are the greatest rappers ever. I love it. So like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, he met, like I already knew yeah. about their stuff. Like I had the, you know, I, I really love the boundaries. Blessed Allah that I found the key. Absolutely. Like when that came out, I was like, man, this is ill. Yeah. But he was like, no. The whole crew, you got to know all of them. You got to know how it. dope they are. I love it. And we would go there and he would just play us like hours of recordings mm -hmm. and VHS tapes and all this stuff from The Good Life. And yeah, yeah man. That's so dope. That's so dope. But yeah, man, these people pass and it's like, yeah, there's no, there's no replacement for them. And so, yeah, the being able to tell their stories and share their art and yeah they live through us they live through our stories through our connections through what what we think they would want to see in the world you know yeah. become these beacons for us when, when you say the funerals are for the living on yeah, the album yeah. those are record like did you record those at the funeral like there no. are people talking or the no so that that ceremonial drives um that's the voice you hear is my friend rahwa that's her oh that's the person i'm the song is about um, and they, the clips are from two different times that we were honoring Hidmo, the space that she helped build. Okay. And she's, and she's speaking to the community, like what the community means to her. And I'm rapping about her and, and the community and Man. yeah. And then the second part of the song. So my friend Jennifer Johns is on that song with me. Mm -hmm. Um, and the song actually was Jen's idea. I sent her the beat and she was like, we should do a song for Rahwa. And... Because Jen was with me when Rawa passed. She she had come to Seattle and we went to a memorial. And, you know, so she's a part of that memory for me too. I was like, okay, word. But, you know, Jen's from Oakland. Mm. And um, and I was like, we should honor your people too because I know you lost a lot of people, you know. And, and the person she wanted to honor was Gab because her and Gab were really close. So you actually hear Gift to Gab's voice in there. And that's a voice note. He left her. Okay. And it was wild. I didn't know this. I've known Jen for like 20 years, but I didn't know that Gab gave her like her whole career. Like when he did that record with Vida and Jake, the fourth dimensional rocket ships going up, mm -hmm. the vocalist he picked to bring on tour was Jen. Wow. And it was her first tour, you know, and, and they just had like a really beautiful friendship ever since then. And I knew they knew each other because, you know, Jen's like Oakland, like royalty, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? But I didn't know that the connection was that deep and that strong between those Do you those know what two. the word hidmo means? Hidmo means home. Uh. <laughs> it's, it, without, we used to always say hidmo means home. It, what it literally means is, is, is it's Tigrinya, it's, it's like a gojo, it's like a circular hut. It's like the name of the type of structures that were homes, you know? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. Yeah. So I always know like that like languages have so much overlap. Oh, for sure. Because there's a word in Arabic that means service. Oh, and is that it means to like serve others. It's khidma, but it's very, it's a very like similar. That's so dope. So Arabic, Hebrew, Amharic, and Tigrinya all have the same root language, and there's so many words that we share. Mm -hmm. You know, I learned this with Abir, uh, Sabrina the Witch. 
dope Palestinian hip hop artist who I worked with in 2012. Mm. And we were talking and we realized, oh, the word bitch is, is the same. Mm. It's home in all of our languages. Mm. Salam is peace in all of our languages. And like, it's, it's deep that we share these words and these are the things that we're fighting for. We're fighting for salam. We're fighting mm. for, for home, for bitch. It's actually just the same word, so, you know? So we did a song about that back in the day. Yeah. 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 Beautiful thing. Man, I can't thank you enough, brother. Appreciate you. Thank you. I love you, man. I love you, too. This, this was really pleasure. beautiful. And we'll hopefully just do it again and again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.